All right. Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala. And uh, today, tonight, tonight, yes, it's nighttime <laughs> for me. Um, we are going to be having a moderated discussion on the topic of apologetic methodology. So if you saw the thumbnail, uh, you know, floating around uh, on the social media, we are going to be discussing the issue of presuppositionalism, presuppositional apologetics, and evidentialism. Of course, both of my guests will clarify what, you know, what is their spe uh, position specifically, and they'll be able to uh, make all of the different qualifications that they want, you know, uh, to, to hash that out. Um, but we're, we're just going to jump right in, folks. I don't want to give, uh, I don't want to waste too much time. And uh, with some with pleasantries. Uh, I just want to uh, have an opportunity quickly to introduce my guests, have them just share a little bit about who they are, and then we'll just jump right into the discussion. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, David Paulman, uh, who is a uh, first-time guest on Revealed Apologetics. And um, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, Eli. Well, it is an honor uh, to have you on. And um I, I, I looking at your Facebook posts, I get jealous. Uh, I'm like, man, I need to get that book. <laughs> you always got something new you're reading. It's uh, always fascinating to see what you're what you're up to. So um, I appreciate uh, your post there. Um, I, why don't I'm you? Told, I'm told I'm told that I'm an expensive Facebook friend to have. Yeah. Well, that yes, that's right. You're the kind of person like if I were to hang out with you, like I would be, I'd lose two hundred dollars because I'm like, all right, and then I'm gonna go home and like, order the books that you suggested. <laughs> So you're one of those friends that make people poor if they hang out with you long enough. So <laughs> it's true. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and uh, and then I'll invite uh, Joshua to join us. Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, I'm pretty boring. I'm just a, a lay person, uh, but, you know, interested in the faith, interested in the defense of the faith. Um, I've you know, done some debates in the past. Uh, I've defended intelligent design theory, defended uh, the existence of God. I've done several debates defending Arminian theology, and then more recently I've uh, been defending an evidentialist apologetic methodology, but anyone who's interested in my work can check it out uh, at my YouTube channel, which is Faith Because of Reason. All right, you're, you're breaking up a little bit. Can you say the name of the YouTube channel one more time? Uh, I apologize for that. Uh, it's called Faith Because of Reason. All right, Faith Because of Reason. All right, well, thank you so much, David. Once again, it is an honor to have you on, and I'm looking forward to a good discussion. Let me... Uh, introduce uh, Joshua Pillows, who is, I'll kind of take David off there for two seconds. Um, Joshua Pillows, who is uh, uh, a, a continuing guest. He's been on a couple of times to talk about various issues, uh, one being the interesting Stroudian objection to transcendental arguments. Uh, Joshua is a, a cool guy, and I'm, ha I'm happy that he's uh, here tonight to have this discussion. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself, Joshua? Uh, well, I have to belabor the point every time I come on here. I uh, My main study is music. I'm basically first and foremost a musician, so I'm an organist at a Lutheran church, though I hold to Reformed theology. Um, I teach uh, piano and music theory. I think I have close to 30 kids now, and I compose a lot of music on the piano, on the organ, um, all to the glory of God. So music's my main study. It's what I do basically every day. And then when I find time, I um, delve into apologetics, so all this philosophical jargon and everything is not my main course of study, but um, something <laughs> I uh, find interesting nonetheless and give uh, glory to God. All right, kids, after we learn hot cross buns on the recorder, then we'll talk about transcendental arguments. Uh, that's an interesting uh, <laughs> mixture there. I, I, 
a preset prelude that you can all play. That's right. That's right. <laughs> do, do you remember Hot Cross Buns? I remember in third. Oh, there's a third grade. I play. Uh, they gave us the recorder. We had the, yeah, that was the first. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, I, I'm so sick of it <laughs> at this point. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you for coming on. Let's uh, get David back on. Let me change the format here of the. Oh, that's not going to work. Let's see here. Boom. Let's get David up there. Bam. There we go. All right. Well, um, this is how things are going to go. Uh, they're going to have uh, a brief opening statement, which they're going to lay out their uh, their view with respect to their apologetic methodology. Um, so I'm going to give the honors uh, to David to go first, since this is his first time uh, on the show. Uh, we're going to flip a coin. We're like, you know, he's the guy with the glasses. Let him go. You know, let him go first. Um, so uh, you're going to give your opening statement and then Joshua is going to give his opening statement. And the rest of our conversation is really just going to be um, a moderated conversation between the both of you where you guys could hash out some of the core disagreements uh, between uh, yourselves with respect to um methodology and things like that. I'm going to be a background guy. I will be on the screen here only to kind of wave my hand to interject on key points. If things kind of, uh, you know, uh, you guys talk over each other for whatever reason. Okay. Um, so without further ado, uh, let us invite David to give his opening statement. Go for it, David. All right, cool. Thanks, Eli. Uh, and hopefully my internet's not breaking up anymore. But uh, yeah, so uh, in order to understand and appreciate, I think the differences between evidentialism and presuppositionalism, it's gonna be helpful to first ask why we have different methods of apologetics in the first place. And since we share a common goal, namely the defense of the Christian faith, one might be tempted to think that our differences just boil down to sort of minor preferential concerns. But unfortunately, this is not the case, as we're gonna see the differences between presuppositionalists and evidentialists could not be deeper. Apologetics is an exercise in justifying Christian belief. And because of its emphasis on justification, apologetics is closely linked to the philosophical discipline known as epistemology, the study of knowledge, which I will understand as being a justified true belief. Within epistemology, there are various different theories of justification. I would submit to you that the differences among apologetic methods arise from their being based on different theories of epistemic justification. In this conversation, I'll be taking up the cause for evidentialism. Evidentialism is both an apologetic and an epistemology. The apologetic focuses on the use of evidence, especially historical evidence, in the use of the defense of the faith. We recognize that Christianity is a religion of history and that its truth is contingent upon certain historical events having actually happened, in particular, the resurrection of Christ. Thus, we seek to justify Christian belief by recourse to historical evidence. The evidentialist apologetic is consistent with the epistemology that it is based upon. Now, I doubt that Joshua and I are going to spend much time debating the apologetic tonight, as both of our apologetics are merely the outworking of our underlying epistemology. Our difference in epistemology is the root of our disagreement. So with this in, uh, with this in mind, I'll endeavor to set forth the evidentialist epistemology as I understand it. Evidentialism as a theory of epistemic justification is defined by Earl Connie and Richard Feldman as the view that the epistemic justification of a belief is determined by the quality of the believer's evidence for the belief. Evidentialism, at least the sort that I'm interested in defending, is characterized by four distinguishing features. Those would be foundationalism, internalism, acquaintance, and inference, and I'll expand on those four points. So first would be foundationalism. Foundationalism is the thesis that all beliefs come in one of two types, those which are inferred from others and those which are not. 
inferential beliefs obtain their justification from other beliefs, whereas the uh, non-inferential or foundational beliefs do not. The second would be internalism. Internalism places an awareness requirement on justified beliefs. In order for some belief to be justified for me, I have to be aware of the reasons or evidence that justifies my belief. The mere existence of reasons or evidence doesn't serve to justify my belief unless I have some sort of access to those reasons, right? Think uh, maybe if there was like this absolute proof of the existence of God. And uh, so you were to ask me, why do I believe in the existence of God? And I were to say, well, there's this absolute proof for it. But then I couldn't give it to you because I said, oh, I'm not aware of it. It seems like that argument isn't justifying my belief. The mere existence of it doesn't justify the belief. Uh, there has to be an awareness requirement, and that's the that's the motivation behind internalism. Third would be knowledge by acquaintance. Acquaintance, I will be defining that as a sui generis relationship, which obtains between the mind and a fact, property, or thought. The relationship is conscious, but it's not propositional or conceptual. Acquaintance is crucial to the evidentialist project because it explains how non-inferential beliefs can be fully justified in an internalist sense. Because acquaintance only obtains between existing roulette, acquaintances guarantee the truth of the beliefs they justify. Fourth and finally, inference. One can move beyond the knowledge yielded through acquaintances by means of deductive, inductive, or abductive inferences. These inference forms are themselves non-inferentially justified, and this is how we extend our knowledge beyond our immediate awareness, but keep it tightly connected to truth. Much more could be said, but these are the basics of the robust sort of evidentialism which undergirds my, uh, my case for Christian theism. Trent Doherty has said that most objections to evidentialism flounder upon a bad theory of evidence, and throughout the rest of this discussion, I hope to show you that this is true. Evidentialism is more than capable of meeting the criticisms leveled against it, uh, and as the vast majority of them are just based upon shallow or inadequate understandings of the theory. So when properly articulated and understood, I maintain that evidentialism clearly has the upper hand over all competitors, including presuppositionalism. All right. Thank you so much for that, David. Joshua, you can jump right in with your opening statement. <clears throat> All right. So while the discussion is situated on the debate between which apologetic methodology is considered to be the most biblical or proper, the discussion can likewise be put this way. Which epistemology allows for the possibility of public, objective, certain knowledge? After all, an apologetic which adheres to a self-destroying epistemology is an apologetic which fails. The Bible speaks of such knowledge coming from God explicitly states that God is the source of all knowledge and therefore that the basis by which public objective and certain knowledge is acquired is by presupposing the revelation of God, not just at the outset, but at every and any point. That is to say, God's public objective revelation is the very foundation for a public objective knowledge. It is precisely because God's revelation is public and objective that public objective knowledge is available and possessed not just to believers, but to all non-believers as well. In short, God's revelation makes possible public objective certain knowledge. The Bible also makes clear the foolishness and futility of rejecting God's revelation as a prerequisite for knowledge. David writes, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool says in his heart. Solomon writes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that fools despise wisdom and instruction. The Apostle Paul reinforces this maxim when he writes to the Romans, quote, 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He likewise uses this language against the natural man to the Ephesians, quote, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Such an epistemology which fails to give reverence to God and begin with his revelation is futile. Paul describes this type of epistemology as being vain, quote, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty or vain deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Christ, who just a few verses earlier in Colossians, Paul says, is the deposit of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul exhorts Timothy to avoid the, quote, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. If one does not begin with God's revelation, with Christ, who is the Logos of God, who is the deposit of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, then as Paul says, one will only obtain a knowledge falsely so called. God's knowledge is original knowledge. Therefore, if man is to likewise possess knowledge, he can only do so by receptively reconstructing or reinterpreting God's revealed objective public original knowledge. To begin with an epistemology that does not give reverence to God and his revelation is to begin with one which is characterized as foolishness, according to the scriptures. If one does not begin with the objective universal revelation of God, one will invariably begin with his own subjective experiences. By denying the objective tether of revelation, such an epistemology will only ever end in subjectivism and therefore skepticism. Thus, Paul asks rhetorically, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? An apologetic that is erected on the ruinous sands of worldly thinking, on autonomous reasoning that does not begin with God's revelation, is one which forfeits the possibility of knowledge. And if knowledge is forfeited, what then is left of such an apologetic? Taken consistently, evidentialism, as predicated on the authority of human reasoning and not revelation, destroys itself. The very notion of evidence is destroyed because human knowledge itself is destroyed. Therefore, a revelational, presuppositional apologetic, which always and everywhere grounds itself in God's revelation, which stands on the scriptures at every point, and the same way that Paul did in his apologetic with the Greek philosophers, is the most faithful, indeed the only apologetic for the Christian to hold to. We concur with the psalmist that in God's light do we see light. All right. Thank you so much for that. Now let's, uh, let's jump right into kind of the conversational portion of this uh, discussion. Um, David, is there anything that Joshua laid out there that you take issue with that you'd like to interact with? Um, and by answering my question there, you can enter, you can interact directly uh, with Joshua at this moment. All right. Uh, yeah. Eventually I want to get to this topic of subjectivism, but um, first maybe a, a bit of clarification is in order. So, uh, in your uh, intro there, Joshua, you talked about um, public and objective certain knowledge. Uh, and so let me ask you this. Do you take knowledge to be something that is public? Yes. Okay. So um, what do you mean by public? Where it is shared by um, all human beings who have been made in God's image. We live in God's universe and he created us to know things. So public means shared in your view. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, that's that's an interesting definition of the word. So do you think that people can share something that is secret? 
No, shared knowledge, meaning that we can all partake in the same, well, according to analytic terms, propositional or propositions. So we can know the same things. But of course, people have their reservations, their secret interpretations and secret experiences, if you want to call it secret, subjective, if you will. So not everything is objective, of course. We all have our own private interpretations of reality and how we see things. But nevertheless, or nonetheless, there's objective knowledge available to everyone. Do you take propositions to be something that are public? Mm-hmm. And by public, you would mean, so for example, like um, if I'm thinking of a proposition right now, can you share that if I'm not like willing to share that with you? Like, cause it, it doesn't, it seems like I can have a proposition in my mind that's completely, you're cut off from that unless I'm willing to tell you what that proposition is. No, like I said, some knowledge would be by na- by its very nature subjective. Like I can't know what you're thinking, right? And you're engaging in propositions in your head and I don't know what they are. But nevertheless, you have to engage in propositions that are that come from God. That's my argument. They can't just be situated in the mind and then you can do with it what you will. God is the source of all knowledge. So yeah, I don't know what you're thinking, but nevertheless, God is the source of the proposition by which you're thinking it. Okay, okay. So I, I think that um, we might have some agreement here. Then. So then you aren't saying that knowledge couldn't be um, private or if you would want oh, no, 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 subjective, no. you would just be saying that the sort that you're interested in for the purposes of this discussion would be that which is public and objective. Yeah, my point is that knowledge is objective and available to all people. I'm not barring the fact that you can have private knowledge and I can have private knowledge. Okay. That's pretty much indisputable. Okay, yeah, I just, I, I, I agree with that. That's just why I wanted to um, go up. Uh, I want to discuss that. Uh, all right. Um, okay. So then I did have some points I wanted to raise on this issue of um, subjectivism because I know that you raised that a lot. So first of all, I guess I'd want to say that I kind of object to the use of the term subjectivism because um, it's it's I don't think it's a good word to describe the objection you're wanting to bring uh, because that term normally refers to some sort of relativism which denies the possibility of objective knowledge. And that's clearly not an entailment of evidentialism. Uh, as I have understood your criticisms of my work in the past, it seems that you want to say that we are stuck with private knowledge. And I would say that that's a little bit different than subjectivism. It's true we can use the words in that way, right? We can sometimes refer to what is private as what is subjective. But I think it would actually be clear if, uh, in, in you know, you, you did say in your opening that you are interested in public knowledge. But I think that that is probably the more accurate term than subjective knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then as far as responses to that goes, um, the fourth point that I raised, or the fourth principle of evidentialism that I raised is inference, right? So I'm going to agree that at the level of basic beliefs, or I remember I hold that knowledge is a two-tier structure. We've got the basic beliefs, and then we've got the inferential beliefs. So yeah, I'm going to hold that at the level of inference, what we can be certain of, that all is going to be um, privately accessible to myself, right? Because I'm an internalist. But I do not hold that we cannot gain public knowledge. I would hold that we can uh, gain knowledge of what is external to ourselves by means of inference. Do you think that the inference there is a failure? Did you say we can't attain objective knowledge? No, I say that we that we can obtain it, oh, but yeah. it's by means it's by means of inference. Oh yeah, I agree. Okay, um, so then, what in in what way would you say that evidentialism fails then in getting objective knowledge? If you say that we can't, if you're agreeing that we can make an inference to that. Well, 
and I'm not, I don't speak for all evidentialists, of course, but as evidentialism has historically been promulgated, it's, it starts with man. It starts with our reasoning. And then what we do is we look at the evidence and see where it leads. And then very probably God exists, or at the very least, a God exists. And so my contention is that if you start with man, you're only ever going to end with man. You can't start with yourself and then somehow get outside of yourself. And so, yeah, you can use inferences. You can use non-inferential beliefs or whatever you want to use in your epistemology. But the crux of my argument is that if you don't begin with God simultaneously, you will never escape subjectivism. Okay, so it seems like in order to validate that, then you would have to say that you could not make inferences beyond yourself. Because if you're going to say you start with yourself, you're going to end with yourself, that seems to negate the principle of inference. Yeah, I mean, inferences are part of discursive reasoning. So you're doing discursive reasoning nonetheless. But my argument is that you have no right if you're going to start with yourself or any evidentialist to say, I'm going to start with myself and I'm going to go through a process of discursive reasoning. And then I'll conclude that, you know, I see a computer in front of me in the objective world. And my argument is, no, if you start with an egocentric picture, you will only ever end in an egocentric predicament. Right. So that seems to be saying then that the inference there, the inference is not valid, that it fails in some way, right? Yeah, it fails to be public. Okay. Um, could you explain to me why you think that the inference is a failure? Because you're not tying your epistemology to anything outside of yourself. You're keeping it in your own you know, mind, if you will, and you're starting with yourself. But now I need a link that gets from you know David Palman to external reality, and then I can draw a meaningful conclusion that says, yeah, you know, God probably does exist. But until I don't, unless I don't have that link, then it's just all in your subjective private experiences. Yeah. And I want to say that the inference that is the link. So the inference uh, is the link to how you would get outside of yourself into the external world and ultimately to God. Well, I mean, that would assume a direct realist point of view. Do you, do you affirm direct realism? I don't know. I don't think you do. It doesn't, it doesn't assume direct realism. I'm not a direct realist. I would be what's known as an, an indirect realist. Okay, so how would ender, how would inferences, you know, you start with yourself, how would inferences be the bridge to something out there? Sure, so it would, be, it would be uh, by means of uh, an explanation, uh, so an, an evidential or an explanationist approach to inference. So we're going to make an abductive inference, right? An abductive inference is an inference to the best explanation. Uh, we know that we have certain uh, experiences, something you seem to be granting for the time being, so that we have these privately accessible uh, experiences that are secured by direct acquaintance. Uh, okay, so we want to propose what's an explanation, right? We can ask, why do I have those experiences? <clears throat> and so the explanation that I'm going to propose as the best one is that we inhabit a real world of three-dimensional uh, mind-independent objects. So realism, I'll say that explains the existence of my having these experiences better than any competing account. And so it seems to me that um, if that is indeed the best explanation, if, if we can't show that that is that there's not an equal, an equivalent or better explanation, then we have justification for believing in an external world. Do you have any proof that there's an external world? No. Uh, well, if by proof you mean a deductive syllogism, no, this would be uh, abductive reasoning. Okay, so you don't have any argument for an external world that at the very least concludes with absolute certainty. We don't have a deductive argument. No, we would have an abductive argument. Okay, so then you would be willing to say that every inference pattern you make could be wrong and that there really is no external reality and that this is, it, you could be totally wrong in that you're an indirect realist, but really it's all anti-realism. 
Uh, well, no, because anti-realism would be a different uh, thesis than uh, indirect realism. So no, I would say that we have justification for being realists, that we have justification for believing that there is an external world. But yes, I would agree that it is less than certain. Uh, that's the nature of abductive and uh, <clears throat> inductive inferences is that they do not guarantee the truth of their conclusions. They are not necessarily truth preserving, but they do provide justification. Uh, only a deductive inference is going to guarantee the truth of its conclusion. So would your apologetic ever conclude that God exists with absolute certainty? Um, mine wouldn't know because uh, I think we can only have absolute certainty of the things with which we have direct acquaintance. And I'm a skeptic that we can have direct acquaintance with external objects to ourselves. I think we only have direct acquaintance with our own perceptions and certain like concepts that we possess. Uh, so no, I would say for myself, I don't think that, I know that God exists with certainty, but theoretically it's, it's um, within the realm of, you know, possibility. Perhaps someone could have a direct acquaintance with the fact that God exists. So it's not like, ruled out that you could have certainty of uh of god's existence but the arguments that i would give for god's existence are mostly going to be abductive and inductive uh they could take a deductive form but even the premises are going to be supported inductively and abductively so the simple answer is no i would not uh, conclude that god exists with certainty okay so this is my point is you're starting with yourself and then you draw inferences and so i'm going to keep coming back to that point you draw inferences starting with yourself and i'm trying to figure out how do you how do those inferences get you to an external reality outside of yourself if you're starting with yourself what is the metaphysical tether that you know ties you subjectively privately to an external world whether it be direct or indirect uh an abductive inference okay but would the would not the inference also be just based on how you're subjectively experiencing the world mm, the um data that you're trying to explain so the um the experiences that you have that's that's the data that you're trying to give an explanation for that would be uh, internal to yourself i suppose the inference is of course internal to oneself as well so um if, if you're asking is the inference internal to yourself the answer would be yes okay yeah so the, yeah this has been my point is everything's internalistic and so if you're going to adhere to well, any epistemology, but you're a foundationalist. So if your epistemology begins with yourself and you start with these maxims, these basic beliefs, notice how every belief you hold to as a foundation is tied to an internalistic and subjectivistic reference point. And so my point this whole time, I don't know how long we've been going back and forth on Facebook. My point is that if every belief you hold to goes back and forth or goes back to a subjectivistic reference point, then you can never escape subjectivism. You would ultimately have to conclude that truth is subjective. Everything is subjective. You could say, yeah, abductively, there's an outside reality. It's in, we indirectly know it. Sure, and I could be wrong. But at the end of the day, I'm just going to keep going back to the subjectivism and saying, I would like some sort of tether that gets you outside of your experience to a meaningful conclusion. Well, what I'm going to go back to is a point that uh, I made before, which is that I think the better word here would be private rather than subjective. So not that everything is subjective, but rather everything is private is the point that you're wanting to make. And if we're talking about certainty, yes, I'm going to agree. Um, but if we are talking about the beliefs I hold, well, no, because beliefs can be intentional. So beliefs can be about things other than themselves. So I can have a belief about the external world, like say that there is an external world. Uh, and then we want to ask, is that belief justified, right? I define knowledge as a justified true belief. 
Uh, now, because the inference I'm going to be making here is uh, less than certain, it's not necessarily truth preserving, then I'm going to have a probabilistic abductive justification for that. So, I mean, if the point you're trying to make here is, well, you could be wrong about it, right? Yes, I'm going to agree with that, but that doesn't mean it's not justified. So I would say I have a justified belief that there is an external world. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like an objection to me to say, oh, well, you, you don't have certainty in that. Because I, I don't take certainty to be uh, required for inferential knowledge. Okay, so what if I go to another foundationalist down the road and he says, I'm an anti-realist based on my basic beliefs and my inference patterns, and I don't believe there is any external reality. Everything's mind, and that's how we construe it. Now, whose word should I take? Should I take your word or the other foundationalist's word? Well, you don't base it on either of our words. You should look at the argument that we're offering. So I would put the same question to him uh, as I would you. And interestingly enough, one of my, uh, I believe I sent you a book by Richard Fummerton at one point. Fummerton would be one of my heroes in epistemology. But he actually agrees. He doesn't think that there's any way to get outside of your own mind. So, I mean, I disagree with him on that, of course. And so, uh, yes, there are foundationalists who do hold that there is actually no way outside of your own mind. Uh, and so I'm going to put the same question to them that I put to you. Okay, at what point does the inference I'm making, at what point does it fail? What was that a question? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I, you can take it. Like, you, you don't have to necessarily answer if you don't want to. We can go to another topic because uh, we have we have been on this one for I, that, that's fine. I want I wanted to, to to allow David to press a little bit, but the nature of the discussion, you you both were able to kind of press a little bit. So let's kind of shift in terms of uh, Joshua spearheading his objections against your position. Joshua, you can continue on a point that you already mentioned, or you can bring up some other element of his methodology that you think um, is a weakness as you see it. Um, it could be more on the philosophical aspect here, or even perhaps uh, kind of a, a biblical issue here. As to, you know, how is his position lining up with scripture, if it, if it at all does? I don't know his view as as to the necessary connection. I don't want to assume. I don't want to presuppose. Um, but um, you can take any line you'd like. Um, you can continue the line you got. You guys have already been uh, discussing. It's up to you. Um, it's all in your court, uh, Joshua, to spearhead the next section here. Okay. Yeah. Um... My closing statement is has more of the theological um, aspects okay. of this, so I'll address those there. But my point now presently is that um, no matter what David does, by starting with himself, he can never end in certainty. And so I'm not going to, you know, pull the side, Ten Brook and Kate, you know, could you be certain about that? Could you be certain about that over and over and over and over and over again? My point is that once you start with a subjective picture, you can only end with a subjective picture. And so a presuppositionalist you know, start standing on God's word as an objective foundation would say, well, that's just absurd. And I would say that's absurd too. And of course, I don't mean that personally, but if you can't get out of your subjective experiences with any definitive tether, that's meaningful, not just, you know, an abductive argument to the best explanation, because again, that explanation could be wrong. I'm looking for something subs substantive that can get out of subjectivism into objectivism. And I use subjectivism because if David is going to be consistent in his epistemology, he's going to have to say that truth is objective or subjective. I'm sorry. And if he wants to say, no, that's self-refuting, it's objective. Well, now he's put himself on the horns of a dilemma. And so now I'm trying to see, I'm trying to get David to see that starting subjectively, you'll end subjectively. If you want to say private, that's fine. So all knowledge he has is private. Well, if it's private, then it's like, uh, okay, well, who cares? You know, I have private knowledge and you know, Bob down the road has private knowledge. And what, what, how do we reconcile these things together? We all have inferences, sure, but we could all be wrong. So I'm again, I'm looking for some sort of objective epistemology, some objective foundation to adhere to. 
in order to prove the existence of God. I want to keep this on, you know, on evidentialism. So I want an apologetic that has a foundation that's meaningful and not just private specifically. And so that's been my point. So if I could chime in here, then I would say uh, what you want there, Joshua, I would like that too. Like if I could have certainty that there was an external world, certainty that God exists, I would absolutely love that, right? Uh, I'm an apologist. <laughs> I, I do enjoy having certainty about things. So when you say, I want these things, I'm like, yes. I'm to the dark things. side, David. We I, have I, I want those things as well. Um, the, the issue here is um, not so much whether we want them as I think whether they're available. So if your point is that David's epistemology doesn't get you certainty that there's an external world where that God exists. Yes, I will grant that right now. I have granted that from the beginning. I don't believe that uh, you can have certainty with respect to those things, nor do I think that you need certainty with respect to those things. I don't think that the vast majority of our knowledge is certain, uh, and I don't see that as being a problem. Uh, so, I mean, and, and again, this is your time to spearhead, as Eli said, but um, if you would you know, want to explain how you think you do get certainty about those things, you know, I would love to pick at that because I don't think you can get certainty on those things. Uh, so I'm happy to grant from my side. I think I can get justified beliefs about those things. I do not think I can get certainty about it. And I don't even think you can get a justified belief about it. But if you could prove me wrong, I would be interested in seeing. I, I would like to interject very briefly uh, for the point uh, for a point of clarification. Um, perhaps, Joshua, you can define for us the difference between because you were using certainty. Um, if you can define for us the difference between um, psychological certainty and epistemic certainty, uh, because that might be confusing to people. Um, you know, if you're just saying I'm certain that God exists, are you just describing a psychological state or are you telling us something more beyond just how you're you are perceiving the issues mentally? Why don't you pick that apart and you can answer uh, David's uh, point there? Yeah, excuse me. No problem. <laughs> Hiccups. Um, yeah. So epi I, when I say certainty, I'm referring to epistemic certainty. OK, it's a certainty where you just cannot fail to be wrong. Epistemically speaking, psychological certainty is basically just amounts to a very strong conviction psychologically. I am certain that this is going to happen, but really it might not happen. So I'm referring to certainty in the maximal sense. You just cannot fail to be wrong about it. And so that's been my um, argument that right. we can be certain as presuppositionalists starting on the word of God, whereas any other epistemology, which doesn't um, can never attain such certainty. Psychological, sure, you know, with self-evident truths or whatever you want to talk about. But epistemic certainty is where um, the core of my argument is. Okay, so, so why don't you, so David, before, I don't want anyone to forget what you were saying. You were saying that you don't think Joshua could have that sort of certainty and that you'd like to see him, you know, I don't know if you want to save that for later since you're spearheading the, que the questions, but perhaps we can get to that so that perhaps uh, Joshua's position can hopefully um, answer David's objection to some satisfaction. Uh, or, or you can pick at it, but um, perhaps you can get to that. But um, Joshua, you can respond to his point uh, or you can answer his question directly. It's completely up to you. Yeah. OK, so, well, now the penultimate question is how do we get certainty? All right. I mean, that, this has been a philosophical problem for millennia, basically. And well, OK, so Van Til comes along in the 20th century and now we have this new presuppositional apologetic and new in quotes. Um, how do we get certainty? Well, it's not by starting with just man. It's not by just starting with ourselves, because my argument, again, is if we start with ourselves, I'll use David's vocabulary. It's private. Everything's private. If you want to say we have certainty in our experiences, I'm all for it, but it's private. So, again, it's like what's certain for you might not be certain for your neighbor. So 
Uh, Van Til maintained that we don't just start with man. We have to start with God, our creator as well. Simultaneously, we can't just say we start with God and then man. We have to start with ourselves as the proximate starting point. But Van Til's point was that we start both with man and with God, and we start with the revelation that God has given us in the scriptures, such that we start with the metaphysical scheme that this is God's universe. God created us. He exists. You know, this laptop in front of me was made by materials from God in the created order. I live in the created order. I have a mind created by God. I made in his image. I was made to think things. So I start with the metaphysical picture, the metaphysically biblical picture of creation and me being made in God's image. And so it's not just I start with myself and then I'll work out for myself, out for my mind to God. I start with myself and with God in his proper place as my God. Right. He is the original uh, knower of everything the creator of this universe. And so how do we get certainty? Well, we get it by starting with our creator at the same time with his revelation. And that's the problem that Van Til brings up over and over and over again, that if you don't start with God, you're reduced to subjectivism and skepticism. And that's the presuppositionalist argument. How do you get certainty? You start with God as well at the same time. How? Because we're made in his image and he's revealed himself at every point of our experience. Yeah, so, I mean, if I can push back on that, um, it seems like you're saying, how do I get um, how do I get certainty? Well, because God reveals it. Um, you know, but uh, I'm curious, like, what justifies this revelation? Well, first, you could ask, how does God reveal it? But more importantly, as far as the justification point, what justifies that revelation? Well, there are three revelations you have. The innate revelation we all have being made in his image. And this, again, this, was, this is going to get where... Um, the apologetic is determined by theology, so we have differences of theology. But according to Van Til, um, it's through innate uh, revelation, we're made in his image. Second, it's revealed in nature, Romans 1, it, nature proclaims the glory of God, um, as the psalmist writes. And then third, it's through scriptures, well, since scriptural or special revelation. And so God reveals His himself through these three mediums, if you will. And so no matter which way we look... If, you know, we want to close our eyes and, you know, not look at anything outside of us, we still know him internally. If we look outside of us, we know him through the created order. And as Christians, we know him through the Bible as what he's revealed himself in. Okay, so if I can then ask on uh, the topic of innate knowledge and scripture, what would you say justifies your belief in uh, accepting? I could say what justifies the innate knowledge and what justifies you believing that scripture is accurate or reliable? Uh, well, the former, I'd have to ask what just if you're asking what justifies my belief in innate knowledge or what justifies it being the case. Uh, justify, I, I am a skeptic that there is such a thing as innate knowledge, but let's just grant that there is. What would the justification be of this innate knowledge, which I'll hypothetically grant exists? Oh, uh, because God says so. And there's no higher authority to appeal to than God. I can't keep going regress. I can't invoke the regress problem. And here's God. And now I got to keep going and going and going. It stops at God. Right. Whereas in foundationalism, it stops with non-inferential beliefs through experience or whatever. It stops with God, according to Van Til. Okay. And so if God says something, you don't question it because he's perfect. He's infallible, holy, sovereign, etc. So you say it stops with God. So you're saying that there is not any justification then for what God says, because that's where the justification stops. No, God is self-justifying. Whatever he says justifies itself by the very nature of who God is. OK, so do you see that there's a circularity issue there? Okay, so then the problem with circular reasoning here is that um, we're not making any progress, right? We're starting in one place and we're ending in that same place. But for somebody like myself, who, you know, maybe you don't want to question God, but, you know, I will have 
two questions there. First, how do you know it comes from God? And then even if it does, why do you believe it? Uh, but then let's, let's just focus on the why do you believe it part of that. Um, if you're just saying, well, I believe it because it said I could believe it, then there's a problem of circularity uh, there. So um, I know you're going to want to say that circular reasoning can, in some instances, be justificatory, right? Yes. <laughs> could you explain under which circumstances circular reasoning is acceptable and why? I'll give you uh, I'll give you two answers. Um, the first, a theological answer. Um, it's um, permissible for God because God is God, and no one speaks for God. God speaks on His own authority. No one questions His revelation. In virtue of who God is, what He says is the case. And so I take that at His word, since I can't appeal to anything higher. And to try to appeal to anything else is sin. It's the same thing that Eve did in the garden. Uh, the second answer is a philosophical answer, and that. Scripture acts as a transcendental to experience, which means it's a necessary precondition. If you don't start with Scripture or presuppose its authority, you're reduced to absurdity. And so you have to assume the truths of Scripture in order to even argue against them. And so the first one, if I would call it, you know, theological circularity, you have to invoke the metaphysical aspect of it. I can't just take God out of the picture and then reduce it to a formality as like a syllogism or whatever and say, oh, there's circular reasoning. Van Til invokes God's ontology into the argument. God is God. You can't question him. But for transcendental arguments, since the Bible is a transcendental for experience, to make experience intelligible, you have to assume the transcendental in order to argue against the transcendental. So transcendental circularity is an indirect circularity. It's not direct, like I'm begging the question. It's indirect in that you have to assume the transcendental in order to even argue for the transcendental. And even secular philosophers have, have adhered to this. Kant, Stroud, and others have adhered to this as well. Open. Well, so we'll, we'll have to be on. I mean, a transcendental argument is just an argument that takes the form that, uh, you know, you need something X in order to get the possibility of Y, Y would be possible. So therefore, X is a reality. Um, now, some types of transcendental arguments, the sort that you would seem to be interested in here are arguments where, uh, you know, a classic example here is going to be Aristotle's argument for the law of non-contradiction, right? Where um, asserting it, or rather denying it, is uh, at least he thought is going to implicitly assume it. Could you maybe draw it out for me how you think a person who says God does not exist is in some way God's existence um, is being assumed in that statement? You broke up. You said how God's existence is being assumed and denying if I said that God does not exist, in what way does that statement assume that God exists? Because when you say God does not exist, you're now invoking a number of transcendentals. You know, the causal principle, laws of logic, uniformity, induction, the reliability of memory and sense perception and cognitive ability. And now the question is, well, how do you make sense of all of these transcendentals? Right? You have all these necessary preconditions in order to even utter the denial of God. And Van Til's argument is that you have to assume God and the Christian worldview in order to even deny the Christian worldview. That this obedient child has to slap his father against the face in order, while his father's keeping him up the whole time. So you have to rely on God to deny God. Could you uh, show me what, in which way that statement would rely on, uh, just to take one example that you listed, the reliability of memory? Uh, how do you mean? So you said that in order to ask uh, the question, or rather in order to hold the proposition, to deny that God exists. So to say God does not exist, that would have to invoke a number of things, uh, including, you said, laws of logic, uh, principle of causality. Um, uh, there were a few others. Uh, 
one of them was the reliability of memory. I'm not sure how I'm invoking these things in affirming proposition God does not exist. So could you maybe show me in what way that depends on the reliability of memory, sensory perception, some of these examples? Because I'm not, I'm not seeing how I'm assuming those things. Well, I mean, you have to go into more detail for memory and sense perception. I mean, sense perception in terms of, you know, if I'm engaging you and I'm, you know, we're looking at each other. And so you're assuming something's there. Um, but then again, you can answer that privately. But uh, more importantly, more meta things like laws of logic and mathematics, causality. You have to assume those norms, those principles, and even in order to even get your argument off the ground or your statement off the ground. Right. So if, if, if you're a skeptic and you say, well, you know, I don't know if God exists or not. Right. And I, I, I just don't believe in God, that God exists. Well, you're at very least saying that's probably true. But if you're going to say that's probably true, then you have to assume the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction. It can't be true and not true. You have to assume mathematical norms that one is one, two plus two is four. All of that's embedded in there. The causal principle, that's something like I invoked that God exists. And then that caused you to say, no, I don't think God does exist. So you're assuming all these principles, all the meanwhile saying, I don't think God exists. So Van Til says only the Christian worldview can make sense of all these transcendentals. And therefore, you're assuming the Christian worldview in order to deny the Christian worldview. Right. What I'm denying is that those things are being invoked and in saying that God does not exist. And so that's where I need the connection made. So, for example, you used the law of identity, right? or, or was, it, was it the law of non-contradiction? Anyway, you said that you could be saying that uh, God does uh, not exist and God does exist at the same time in the same sense, right? Uh, that does not assume the law of non-contradiction, right? So uh, it is a mistake to think that a non-contradictory fact that is affirm affirmation of a non-contradictory proposition commits you to a law of non-contradiction. That is people who do not believe in the law of non-contradiction. They don't believe that all contradictions are true. They believe that some contradictions are true, but they also believe that other contradictions are false. So to say that God does not exist, does not commit you to there being a law of non-contradiction. Does that make sense? Okay, so I could just ask you the question is what you said true. And is it also true that it's not true at the same time? So I can just invoke the law of non-contradiction against your objection of the law of non-contradiction. That's not that's not invoking the law of non-contradiction. That's just asking about this particular proposition. So what's the law of non-contradiction? It would be a proposition about other propositions, namely that no um, that no contradictions can be true. So that no um, two or more propositions which are uh, incompatible with each other can obtain at the same time and in the same sense. So is it possible for God to exist and not exist at the same time? Uh, well, are you asking me or are you asking the hypothetical person we're saying who's denying God's existence? Well, both. I mean, if we're going to, you know, meander with the law of non-contradiction, and I get that happens in, you know, quantum physics and dialetheism, there are some arguments against it. And, you know, uh, even granting that, that's fine. But in order to affirm dialetheism or quantum physics, you have to assume that what you're saying is true and not not true at the same time. So the law of non-contradiction still holds. No, see, it's not the law doesn't hold. You'd be saying that this particular proposition is true and not false, but it's not saying that all propositions uh, are going to be true and or are, are going to be either true or false. In other words, you could affirm that some propositions are both true and false while saying that this particular one, namely that God does not exist, that yes, that's true. The point I'm making with this is I'm not here to defend dialetheism. As you know, I, I reject dialetheism. Yeah. But I'm just saying that the person is not, in fact, assuming the law of non-contradiction there. 
and it just seems to be you're saying that um, in order to deny God's existence, you have to assume all these things. And I don't think you have actually established that I'm assuming the reliability of memory, sensory perception, laws of logic, anything like that. To say God does not exist, it, it doesn't seem to me that what you want to call transcendentals, I'm not seeing how those are being assumed. Well, I mean, again, you have to assume them in order to deny them or not deny them. You'd have to go back and forth with denying or defining terms and so forth. But if I, as a Vantillian, I would just back up and say, okay, what are laws? You know, what are principles? The principle of causality? What's mathematics? What are these abstract things we call numbers and laws and so forth, normalities? And now my question is, well, how do you account for that on your worldview, right? If you want to put into question the law of contradiction, or the law of excluded middle, as has been done for thousands of years already. My question is, okay, well, how do you account for um, bringing it into question to begin with, right? Are we assuming some objective external reality? We're assuming the reliability of our senses, our cognitive abilities. Are we assuming causation at all? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, it's fine. If the person is really assuming those things, absolutely. I mean, you're free to bring it up and ask how the person accounts for it. I'm just saying in the case of this particular proposition, God does not exist. It's not clear to me that you've established that the person in uh, holding the proposition God does not exist has assumed any of those things, even if I wanted to grant you that assuming those things would somehow be tacitly presupposed of God. Now, that's the second part of the conversation, as you know, I don't think that believing those things is in any way presupposing God's existence. But it just seems to me that uh, if the person is saying God does not exist, it's not even clear to me that they are presupposing those things. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, but now we're going to go back to a comparison of worldviews. I have a worldview and my opponent has a worldview. Now, which worldview can make sense of laws of logic and mathematics and causality and uniformity in nature and so forth? And my opponent, my argument is he can't even make sense of the preconditions necessary to say, I'm, I'm not using the law of non-contradiction or I don't believe God exists. He can't even make sense of the preconditions to even say that statement without assuming the Christian worldview. Okay, so for example, uh, what would say like just laws of logic, right? Do you have an absolute disproof of something like Platonism or something like nominalism? I mean, these are proposed again. I'm, I'm not sure which view you hold on this. I'm, it seems to me most presuppositionalists hold to a sort of divine conceptualism, which, you know, that's one way of accounting for abstracta, but I mean, so would nominalism and Platonism. Do you have like absolute disproofs of those ways of accounting and understanding um, things like that? Well, the trickery there is that even within presuppositionless you'll have different views of you know what laws are yes, and i think will. most would say divine conceptualism i'm a divine conceptualist but i know there are some in a thomistic tradition that have different views or not necessarily different but you know a little meandering and here and there but i mean if you want to attack the point that we all have little disagreements over you know what exactly the laws are and how they relate to god that's fine but again, my argument is transcendental. I'm going to back up beyond that. I'm going to go zoom out from that picture and say, what needs to be true in order to make sense out of laws of logic and mathematics to begin with? Barring mm -hmm. discrepancies between even presuppositionalists, those are more secondary issues. What needs to be true in order for there to be absolute, universal, eternal laws of logic and mathematics? That's that's what Van Til has, one of the arguments Van Til has presented over the years. Right. So uh, I, know I apologize if it wasn't clear before. I wasn't picking at disagreements among presuppositionalists. I was just I didn't want to I didn't want to, pre I didn't want to <laughs> presuppose that you were a divine conceptualist. But um, I was saying that we have all we have rival accounts. Right. We have divine conceptualism. We also have Platonism and nominalism. And I'm not saying that presuppositionalists hold. I don't know of any presuppositionalist who holds to nominalism. But uh, we've got Platonism and nominalism. Right. So uh, Platonism, for example, 
that would sufficiently account for there being uh, laws of logic that are eternal and unchanging and whatever else you would want to say. I, I tend to lean more towards the nominalist camp where I would uh, deny in one sense that laws of logic exist in that sense because I'm skeptical that they exist as abstract objects. Um, because I'm also a theist, I'm going to say that they do actually exist as eternal propositions in the mind of God, but I don't think we're tapping into that when we have our own um, thoughts about it. But it would have been if the if nominalism, for example, if that's a viable um, alternative for the atheist to take, then he can just reject your assumption that there are these eternal, unchanging laws of logic. Or if maybe you've got an argument for that, he can accept Platonism. I'm just like, can you like actually rule these possibilities out? Because it seems to me like we've got multiple ways here, uh, at least three possible ways uh, being proposed that would make sense of laws of logic. Uh, and, you know, we can argue which is the most plausible, which is the best. Um, but I, I don't see any like knockdown proof against um, any of these proposed accounts. Well, I'll tell you what, David, when I first heard that there were Christian physicalists, um, I, at that point, I was like, well, you know, there's no way you can find unification even in, with it between Christians. That just boggled my mind. Um, so, well, in terms of if we're talking about laws of logic, you know, I could grant that maybe there's some sort of quasi-nominalist view, and I don't accept that at all right now. I firmly don't believe that's the case. But again, the tendency is to situate oneself on the subject when my point is I'm going to keep backing up and look at the transcendental considerations because that's my apologetic that's my worldview right so what even needs to be possible to argue for anomalous to argue against a platonist a divine conceptualist or whatever what needs to be the case and even to order argue and even to argue for the laws of logic on anomalous view or a platonist view i'm looking for the preconditions in order for that itself to be intelligible not just to focus on that debate I'm backing up and saying what needs to be the case in order for that debate between these two parties needs to be the case. What needs to be the case? Yeah, uh, I'm perfectly okay with, you know, backing up as well. I mean, as you know, for me, everything's ultimately going to back up with um, acquaintances and with you, everything is going to back up with God said so. Um, and I, I would like to push on that circularity point a bit more uh, there. But I, I was just saying in regard to the specific issue that you were bringing up, like you were saying what would need to be the case in order to have... Uh, you know, eternal uh, immaterial laws of logic. I was just saying on that particular point, it does seem like the atheist has plausible alternatives. Open oh, I'm sorry. Haven't been ruled out. Okay. So I, I forgot about that point. Okay. If the atheist, and this happened in the Bonson-Stein debate in 1985, and, and the Q&A, an atheist said to ask Bonson, well, why can't I just presuppose the laws of logic, you know, on, on any point of view they were referencing? And the point is, Bonson said, that's fine. You know, the laws of logic have a transcendental necessity to them. You know, you can't deny them without affirming them. I mean, it's self-contradictory. And so Bonson at the debate said, oh, okay, that's fine. But the point is, how do you now unify all of these particular transcendentals together into a holistic system? Because someone can just argue for causality, and then maybe anomalist atheists will argue for the laws of logic and then uniformity in nature. Well, now Van Til says, well, how do you bring all these things together? You need a worldview in which all the transcendentals can be brought into harmony with one another, in which all the facts can relate to one another in the mind of man. And Van Til says it's the Christian worldview. God has made all of these things uh, capable to the mind of man. If you have, if you want to argue transcendentally, nominalistically for the laws of logic, as against a Platonistic view of the laws of logic, 
from a transcendental perspective or whatever, Bantil says, okay, that's fine. But it's like a rock falling in a bottomless ocean. You have a hard substance, a transcendental argument, or nominalistic or Platonistic or whatever. You have a hard substance, but it's just falling in a bottomless ocean. You have nowhere to put it. You need a worldview in which you can fit all of these arguments together. And Bantil's contention was it's the Christian worldview that can do so. So the debate between nominalist point of view and the Platonist point of view of laws of logic, we can talk about that. But again, I'm looking at ultimate commitments. What must be true in order to make sense out of intelligibility, in order to make sense even out of that debate itself? Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm sensitive to that concern there. And I mean, I can appreciate that way of viewing it. So what I'm pushing towards here uh, and what's motivating my evidentialist apologetic is that it seems like we have multiple competing worldviews, all of which are capable of explaining the relevant data, all of which are capable of explaining why this debate is able to happen. Right. And so then what I want to say is then, OK, we're going to have to look at the specific evidence and then see which worldview is explaining that data the best, because we can all build a worldview to explain something. We can all explain the laws of logic in our worldview. We can always explain the existence or non-existence of universals, one in many in our worldview. We can explain those things. You know, you can do that as an atheist. You can do it as a theist. You can do it as a theist. You can do it as a Christian. Uh, it, it seems to me that there's just not an argument there because we can all do it. So then the question is, okay, who's doing it the best? And so that's what's pushing me towards evidentialism. Okay, so yeah, now I've seen this objection actually recently with an atheist, and he had Dr. Alex Malpass on, who's a British um, philosopher. I don't know if you do you know him, Dr. Malpass. I, I've had a couple interactions with him. I, I like him, but uh, you know his coherentism clashes with my foundationalism. So yeah, oh yeah, that's that makes sense. So he was on with three other people, and they're all atheists, and they're critiquing. What's this impossibility of the contrary, right? I mean, as you said, everyone can have a worldview. Everyone does have a worldview in which they try to interrelate all the facts together and make sense out of experience and so forth. And then Van Til comes along and says, well, we prove it from the impossibility of the contrary. Well, it's like, man, that's a lot of worldviews you got to go through, right? I mean, just think of all the different points of view and experience. And then once you get through all of the points of view of experience that people hold to, now we got to go through all the hypothetical worldviews that can go through. And it just never ends. It's like, you would die long before you could even finish refuting every single other worldview that makes sense of experience. And so, well, what's the comeback to this? Well, again, it goes back to transcendental reasoning. Transcendentals are necessary preconditions. And if they're necessary preconditions, you can't have another necessary precondition that contradicts it. There can only be one. And so Van Til's point is there's only one transcendental and you can't have multiple. Otherwise, you're left with incoherence. And so the Christian worldview accounts for it transcendentally therefore by default every other worldview is wrong because it assumes the christian worldview and sorry what are you saying this necessary transcendental is that like unites the worldview and what are you saying that that is oh the existence of god metaphysically and then his revelation epistemically okay all right yeah so i mean that just sounds like you're saying that um if you don't have god in your worldview then you don't have god in your like I, it just it's just like this is not something that's necessary for a non-christian worldview to account for they don't have no. to account for the necessary transcendental of the christian god because their worldview doesn't accept that well that's fine but again vantil says what foundation are they standing on when they accept when they say that that's the case they can't make sense out of experience at all if they can at best it's private it's subjective but even then you have to ask the question how does your mind interrelate all the 
you know, propositions in your head together into a cohesive system. You know, that was Hume's criticism as well. And so Van Til says, yeah, if the critic wants to say, I have a worldview that can make sense of it, I'll say, fine, let, let me hear it, you know. But then at the end of the day, he's assuming the Christian worldview in order to do it, because there can only be one true worldview, one true reality, one true yeah. transcendental. Yeah, we agree that there can only be one uh, correct worldview. But uh, the point, I think, is uh, apologetics is how are we illustrating that the Christian worldview is that worldview, right? So, yes, I mean, I'm going to agree with you that there's only one that's correct. Uh, and there was another point of that I wanted to respond to, but unfortunately, yeah, it skipped my mind. You could do it in one of two ways. Transcendental reasoning by its nature is indirect. We don't give a, you know, a modus ponens argument. And then say, okay, there you go, case closed. We prove it indirectly from the impossibility of the contrary. The transcendental argument in a formal nature would be a syllogism. All right. So the first premise would be for P to be the case. Well, and this is one way of putting it. For P to be the case, Q must be the case because Q is a necessary precondition for P. Then the minor premise is, well, P is the case. Therefore, Q is the case. And so the question now, so that would be, I guess you would call it the positive form, the direct form, but that's not technically correct, but I'm giving it to you in a syllogistic way. Okay, well, now some transcendentalist comes along, gives you that syllogism and says, here, Q is the case, Q is a necessary precondition for P, P is the case, so Q is the case. Well, that's not enough to convince anyone, right? You have to prove that Q is the necessary precondition. And how do you do it? Well, you deny Q. You show that, okay, if you deny Q as a necessary precondition, you're left to absurdity or you render the operational feature that you're talking about unintelligible. So you take the opposite of the transcendental, show that it's absurd, and therefore include that absurdity can't be the case. So therefore, the transcendental must be the case. Well, and that's what I was trying to do before is I was trying to deny that that first premise there and say that uh, in saying the proposition that God does not exist, I don't think that you have shown that that uh, is reducible to absurdity in and of itself. Okay, well, which I'm going to attack the worldview now. So if a worldview comes along and says God doesn't exist, I'm going to ask that person a number of things. I'll ask him, well, first, how does he know that? And then how does he make sense out of human uniformity and nature outside of him granting that? inside of him internally how does he make sense out of logical norms mathematical norms causality you know cogitation all of these different things mm -hmm. that he's utilizing in order to even utter the statement right mm -hmm. so i'm going to push him on his own assumptions how does he back that up transcendentally how does he prove that god doesn't exist what are the transcendentals he's appealing to and how does he unite them into one cohesive system without assuming my worldview already yeah, and I mean, it seems like that's what we kind of went on before for a while, right? Like you want to push back on laws of logic, and I was saying they can explain that through Platonism or nominalism. Uh, you know, if you want to push back on morality, they got similar explanations there. So this just seems to go back to the other point that it seems to me that the absurdity of denial of God's existence has not been demonstrated because atheists have viable answers open to them at every turn. I would. Sorry, Eli, you want to yep. So I so let's now. So there are a couple of points that you guys were 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 suggesting that uh, Joshua was saying you need the Christian worldview, and then David seems to be saying, well, I mean, there are multiple options available to the unbeliever, right? Uh, he can adopt Platonism, he could adopt nominalism, he could adopt the different perspectives, and it seems that there was kind of a talking past each other. So let's take a moment to kind of narrow in on that that point. So my question to Joshua on behalf of David, okay, and you can correct me if I'm not representing where what you're trying to get at, David. Um, you're saying the unbeliever has other options. Joshua, why, why is it the case that the unbeliever's options are not good options? In other words, you're saying he can he can 
choose different perspectives, but they won't work because is that what you're getting at, David? Pretty much, yeah. It's like you're going to say that uh, if you deny if you deny God's existence, then it's absurd. And I'm saying how? He's saying, well, okay, laws of logic. Okay, well, they can go to Platonism. Why is that absurd, right? right. Or else you're going to have to abandon your argument from laws of logic and go to something else. And it just seems right. like any point you can bring where allegedly denying God's existence is absurd, there is a non-absurd answer. I would hasten to add, from the evidentialist perspective, I think we can show these explanations that they're wanting to give are not as good as theism. But it seems like Joshua wants to make this stronger claim and say not merely that theism is more probable than atheism, he wants to say it's actually absurd. And so I'm saying, then where is the absurdity in Platonism, nominalism, etc.? So, so Joshua, perhaps you can give some illustrations as to why you think Platonism or one of those other options he suggested are, are not, they're not implausible, but they're actually absurd. Is there kind of an illustration that you can give an example, a sampling, uh, if you will, of why some of those options um, really aren't good options for the unbeliever uh, to take? Well, again, I, I've belabored many points to David, and I'll reiterate probably three of them so again the first i brought up david talks about non-christians have options okay well no matter what the non-christian has let's talk about anything Bantil says talk about anything and we'll see how it implies god so let's talk about options what are options well in order for this notion of options to be the case there has to be uniformity in nature rational faculties etc that everything's united so i would again have to ask how is my opponent's position unified cohesively internally and externally, what needs to be the case for there to be options to make sense out of terms like Platonism and nominalism? Uh, and then the second thing, again, as I belabored, the Christian worldview can already make sense of these things universally. And David's already admitted that there can only be one worldview. So now my question is, well, why are we arguing anymore? Because the Christian worldview can do it. So again, my opponent, he says they have alternative answers. But again, as I've already said, everything's private, everything's subjective. So who cares? You know, it's it's suitable and it's intelligible to them personally, but why should I listen to that person personally if I can go to someone else and take their opinion? It's all arbitrary, right? Well, and that's, uh, Bonson belabored that point over and over again. If you want to argue transcendentally for the laws of logic, as he said, with Platonism or nominalism, now you have to find a worldview which you know, unites all the transcendentals together. So these three points I've been belaboring over and over again, and it seems like David's kind of beating around the bush with it. I need a worldview which unites all of the transcendentals together. I need a worldview which can make sense of this cohesiveness of my thinking to even object to God's existence. And I need a worldview that can even make sense of the notion of what are options? What needs to be true? And even to say, I have options. What needs to be true to even utter that sentence to begin with? That's what that's what I'm getting around. I'm looking at transcendental considerations, broad picture. What needs to be the case? Okay, so uh, certainly I apologize if anything has come across as beating the a beating around the bush, but respectfully, that seems to me also to be what you're doing because you keep bringing up an issue, saying, "Oh, well, the atheist has a problem here." I'm saying, "Here's a solution. Can you show me how it reduces to absurdity?" You say, "Okay, oh, we're well, saying they've got options. Well, how do you account for options?" Again, you could also do that through Platonism. So again, why is Platonism absurd? It seems like you like want to keep running away from the issue. Like they're offering their account. They're offering their worldview. They're doing what you want them to do. They're giving explanations for these things. And you're like, well, I'm just going to take it up another level. And, uh, okay. you know, and perhaps like that's that's just how it's going to go. Right. And so we want to do another topic. But that's that, that's kind of how the um, well, topic is going from my perspective. If I, if I could jump in real quick, and I do apologize. Um, I don't want the, the, the conversation to get too off topic. But um, 
Joshua, you think Platonism doesn't work. So are uh, David, are you asking him then to just right now offer a refutation of, of Platonism? <laughs> I well, mean, uh, or you see what I'm saying? I, that would, that would lead him. I, I think to have to now like refute Platonism like one by one for the purpose of this conversation. I'm not sure if he'd want to take the time to, to refute that, but I mean, and maybe you do, maybe that's a point you think that's important and that's fine as well. I'm just so that master argument you presented uh, before, right? About how we yeah. have um, that God is necessary in order to have, um, oh goodness, I'm forgetting what you put there, but um, basically that you need God in order to have any kind of uh, intelligible experience, right? To, to, deny, to deny God's existence, the Christian God's existence is going to lead to absurdity. That was the first premise of the argument. I want to see how that is justified. And so let's say, okay, let's take the proposition, God does not exist. And then like, let, let's see you do your worst to reduce it to absurdity. So you're going to say it's absurd because it can't account for laws of logic. I'm saying, okay, here's a defeater, Platonism. So kind of, I would ask if you can give a defeater to that in order to justify his belief that atheism does reduce to absurdity. And re respectfully, Joshua, it just seems that you have not wanted to defeat right. it. So I, I brought it up and... You're very analytic, and I'm very Vantillian and continental. So the, this whole we're, the language we use is, and I'm Puerto Rican. Are we years? We're going to be talking past each other, and I, I anticipated this, and that's fine. I'm not going to fault either one of us. But again, okay, I'll take your position. Okay, an atheist comes along and says, "I have Platonism. Here are the laws of logic. I can account for the laws of logic." Right? Is that what basically you're you're getting at? So I'm saying I don't see any absurdity in that. Okay, so. As a Vantillian, I could say, okay, you have Platonism and you have your laws of logic. I'll grant it. And I brought this up already. Now what? Right? The laws of logic by themselves are not enough to give you an intelligible experience. There are so many other things. So if the atheist says, okay, I have laws of logic, well, now I'm going to press him on a plethora of other necessary preconditions that he needs to justify. And yet, at the back of it, he still hasn't justified how his brain can make sense out of his experience to begin with, such that he can argue Platonistically for laws of logic. I keep going back to the fundamental issues. So I'll grant him the transcendental. If he can account for laws of logic, great. Okay, now account for the causal principle. Now solve induction with absolute certainty. Solve uniformity in nature. You know, all of these other things. So it's not it's it's not a blockhouse method, you know, like Van Til says, we don't build block by block. If you want to argue transcendentally for the laws of logic, you have a block, you have a rock falling in an ocean. I need somewhere to put it. And if you don't have a worldview that brings all of these, you know, meta issues together, then you don't have an intelligible worldview. And again, as I've been arguing, all of this already assumes the Christian worldview. All of this assumes biblical authority and what God has revealed in Scripture. So at, at a certain point, it's like I got to ask, why are we arguing anymore? Because you already said there's only one true worldview and our worldview, our Christian worldview can make sense of it. And so if an atheist says, I can make sense out of laws of logic, okay, that's one thing at best. I'm taking for granted he can't even make sense of what's happening in his head. That's at best what he's solved. Now give me an answer for all the other transcendentals and then unite them all together. Yeah, and so what I'm saying is, you know, I mean, we can go through the whole list, but I'm saying I have not seen an example of these things that you want to call transcendentals that atheists don't have non-absurd answers for. And so it seems like to justify that master that first premise of the master argument that these have to be shown to be absurd options or that that transcendental argument that you offered from the outset it, it doesn't get off the ground because the first premise of it has not been justified in fact it would seem to have been falsified and so just by saying well i'm going to grant you platonism 
Uh, okay, so yes, I mean, we could go through all the topics, right? You know, I think that there's a solution to the problem of induction. You know, I think that there's solutions to the logocentric predicament. These traditional problems of philosophy, as far as I can see, they do have non-absurd solutions. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't have to go through the whole list. It just, um, it, it seems like that's kind of, this is serving as a defeater to that first premise of your argument. And, okay, now um, you have to bring them all together. If you can't bring them all together, then everything's disjointed and I don't have coherence. So if I grant that, okay, fine, I'll bring it all together into a workable worldview, assuming that I know you're not an atheist or whatever, but just for the sake of the argument, okay, fine, I'll give you every transcendental you want and I'll bring it all together to where everything's cohesive and works. And if you can't do that, there is no such thing as intelligibility because I have no unification between anything. Can you explain what you mean by bringing together and why that's so important to you? Okay, so it, let me, let's say, you know, I, I think Bonson argued for laws of logic in the Stein debate. And then he argued for uniformity in nature in the Tawish debate. And then, you know, causal principle, mathematics, um, um, proper cognitive function are at the very least reliable. All of these uh, all of these things that we have to um, assume for an experience to be intelligible. Okay, now, what was that, four? Okay, I have four different things now. Now, what is the meta factor that takes all of these things together? Right. Because if I just, you know, go one by one by one, one at a time, that's great. But that doesn't at all imply unification between the four. I need something holistically bringing all of them together. Right. It's almost like the problem of the one and the many sort of. I have all these many's, but I don't have any one that unites them all together. I need some ultimate cohesiveness in a worldview that interrelates all these transcendentals together. So this this might be my nominalist sympathies kicking in here, but why why do you think you need that for intelligibility because if you don't have coherence then there's no such thing as intelligibility yeah but coherence is different coherence is different than unification okay well the way i was defining it it, it would be the same thing basically i need something that where everything coheres with one another where everything's unified yeah. together so I, I would agree but i don't i don't think that there is any um factor that is making things like external to a system of beliefs that is making it coherent i don't think there's like this universal that supervenes on coherent belief sets and makes them coherent i think that they just are coherent in virtue of uh, their um non-contradictoriness uh with one another and i don't I don't think I need any to, I don't think I need an external unifying factor for that. Okay. Well, so there you appeal to, you know, logical norms. I don't know if you would call it the law of non-contradiction, but okay. Again, you, you say everything is unified in a non-contradictory way. And so I have, okay, well, that's fine. You have coherence given your mind, but I, again, I need everything cohering together, not just in your mind, but with facts outside of your mind between laws of logic, mathematics, all, all these other sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have coherence. You've, built up this philosophy, I call it foundationalism, if I could, you know, summarize it that way. You've built up this philosophy and everything coheres with itself. But again, I have to keep asking on your worldview, you know, if I assume you're not a Christian on your worldview, how do you make sense of the cohesiveness of your rational abilities to even formulate an epistemology to begin with? I'm asking you to back up and look, what, why, how is it that you can have rational abilities up here and formulate everything cohesively, barring the fact that it's all private and, you know, therefore arbitrary? How do you account for cohesiveness at all? Well, assuming that I would, assuming if I were an atheist, then the explanation would presumably be that that is the way that evolution, had, you know, designed me and endowed me with the abilities to do that. Um, but I don't think you need to know how you have the ability to do it. Like, you don't need to know um, how in order to know that. So, like, you can know 
these certain propositions about reality, even if you don't know like the full causal chain of events that rendered it such that you were able to do that. It just seems like a bit of a not sequitur to me. Sounds kind of like externalism, huh? <laughs> that would that, it, see that's where I would go because I, I yeah. the second pillar that I brought up was internalism, right? So yeah, in yeah. my view, external factors. I, if I don't have awareness of something, it's not um, relevant to the justification. Yeah, there you the go. Movie. So uh, yeah, again, it's just you have this cohesiveness, and I, I, I like I've just got to keep asking the question. You, if you're an atheist. And I, we're kind of getting off the whole evidentialist presuppositional thing. Yeah, gonna, uh, why don't you answer this last part here, and then we'll kind of shift gears a little bit. I want to know a little bit about um, the biblical foundations for your methodologies and where that fits in uh, with respect to both of you. I mean, I'm a presuppositionalist myself, so I kind of know uh, Joshua's position, but maybe he could explain uh, in a little bit more detail the biblical basis for his method, and then David, um, you could explain how the Bible fits in with your methodology um, and, and how you understand those things. So why don't you finish the, that thought, Joshua, and, and then we'll move on to that if that's okay, unless there's something very pressing David wants to uh, add on top of what David's, uh, Joshua says. Okay. No, no, I'm, I'm a pretty... okay. Yeah. So again, I, I keep going back to the preconditions necessary to even object to Christianity to begin with, right? If you can object to Christianity, what are the preconditions you're objecting to? And Van Til's argument has been, you're already assuming the metaphysical structure that God has laid out in the Bible. And so David wants to keep presenting these hypothetical scenarios of an atheist who can account for laws of logic or, you know, I have cohesiveness in my thoughts. And so I don't need God. Well, no, that doesn't necessarily imply that you don't need God. You've just concluded that. I keep going back to the question, how do you attain cohesiveness to begin with in your worldview? Presuppositionalism is a comparison of worldviews. And so as far as I can tell, David hasn't answered the question of how there's even coherence to begin with. He hasn't answered the question of how laws, how all these transcendentals are brought together, and he hasn't addressed the fact that since the Christian worldview can already account for these preconditions, there's no other argument. I mean, the only other argument to give is that I can just reduce any opponent that comes to me to absurdity, and that he's assuming I'm right to say that I'm wrong, right? And so, again, I, I think there's some talking past each other, um, I guess, from the traditions we come from, but my point has always been we start with transcendental analysis, with worldview analysis. And I keep asking these big questions to David and they're still left unanswered. So anyway, yeah, I kind of want to get back onto uh, <laughs> apologetics. You know? Okay. <laughs> uh, unless there's something David wants to add to that, uh, we'll move on to the next uh, portion here with what I mentioned before with respect to biblical foundations. Is there any last uh, comments you want to make there? No, I would just say if those were the questions that you wanted answered, I wish you'd asked them like in, in the opening statement and I would have gotten right to answering them. Well, I didn't know what we were going to talk about. <laughs> well, I did know. Okay. I just didn't know specifically. So I just gave out a presentation of a presuppositional methodology. No, I got, okay. you. I got you. All right, cool. Um, so um, let's let's move. Let's shift to David um, with respect to explaining his uh, biblical foundation uh, of uh, evidentialism. You describe yourself as an. I know there's kind of variations within apologetic methodology. Would you just uh, um, describe yourself as an evidentialist? Uh, what other apologists can people think of so that they can understand? Oh yeah, David. David's more in line with that. Uh, if people are familiar at all with uh, Dr. Timothy McGrew and his wife, Lydia McGrew, uh, I very much follow them in my approach. They're unfortunately not as well known uh, in the apologetics community, but if you're like an apologetics nerd, you should be familiar with those names. 
those would very much be uh, apologists who I would follow very closely in my own methodology. Uh, there are other evidentialists who I follow less closely. So like uh, people know names like Gary Habermas, Michael Lacona, they would be considered um, evidentialists. Uh, Jonathan McClatchy, uh, he would be another evidentialist. Uh, unfortunately, just evidentialist names are often not as well known, but those are some names they might know. Okay. Um, now, with respect to evidentialism as a methodology, why do you hold to evidentialism? Um, and is the reason, I mean, I'm sure there's multiple reasons, but is there a biblical grounding for why you hold to that specific view with respect to your epistemology? Or do you not think that they're necessarily uh, derived from the other? Uh, can you explain that for us? So I'm going to get some hate on this, but I am not primarily an evidentialist because I think that the Bible teaches it. And now, if you think that's an objection to evidentialism, then that's just criticizing me for being an evidentialist and not presuppositionalist. So you have to do an internal critique of my evidentialism. There you go. Uh, it, it, it is not an objection to evidentialism that we do not um, explicitly derive that from Scripture in the first place because it is part of the very methodology that Scripture is something that we would arrive at the truth of inferentially. Now, that being said, we would have a problem if it was, you know, we arrived evidentially at the truth of Scripture and then Scripture was containing things that, you know, said that we shouldn't be arriving at it that way. So I do think it is fully consistent with Scripture, even though I would not first and foremost be an evidentialist because Scripture teaches it. And, you know, I won't go through all the biblical evidence, but just some examples would be Paul's case for the resurrection and uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, definitely is fraught with um, appeals to eyewitness testimony. Uh, we have Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where they do an evidential test to see, you know, which, uh, whether God or Baal is... Um, uh, is the true God. And we see that, uh, I think this is in first Kings 18. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't see anything about, you know, doing internal critiques of worldviews and accounting for laws of logic or induction. Uh, it's, it's, it's very evidence-based, uh, based on which God, you know, would send fire from heaven. Uh, you know, even Jesus's own words, right? John 14, 11, uh, believe me for the very work's sake, uh, appealing to his miracles. So I would say evidentialism is fully consistent with scripture, but, I would be certainly lying if I said I was an evidentialist because I thought the Bible taught. I do think scripture is fully consistent with it, though. Okay. Thank you for that, David. Uh, Joshua, why don't you tell us uh, why you are a presuppositionalist in the sense of how do you think the Bible, you know, how do you use the Bible to support your presuppositionalism, um, especially in light? I'm going to add kind of a little salty flavor to the question, right? Especially in light of the of the fact that presuppositionalism really comes into full kind of thrust with Van Til, and you don't really see a lot of it throughout the course of, of church history. So that's kind of a criticism too. You know, it's innovative. It's, you know, if we're claiming it's biblical, then why didn't anyone else use it? You know, so um, why don't you answer the first part? What's your biblical grounding for your position? And maybe address that aspect of the question I just threw in there, perhaps to complicate things more than it should. But go ahead. Thanks, Eli. I'm so uh, sorry. <laughs> um, well, I hold to it because it holds to the lordship of Christ at any and every point. We stand on the scriptures. I mean, you just think about the Christian picture of things, right? God created the universe and Adam and Eve and he, well, they fell into sin. And so now the plan of redemption comes into the picture. And all throughout all of this time, you know, we have written revelation from God until revelation. It's written by John. And now we have this church that's been around for 2,000 years, the Bride of Christ. And we have these scriptures that come from this God. So if you assume that picture, 
why why would you not start with God's own revelation? And so presuppositionalism is a comparison of worldviews, but it stands always on the lordship of Christ, right? Without Christ, there is no knowledge, or without presupposing God, there is no knowledge. Anything at best would be private or subjective, as I've belabored before. And even then, that needs to be explained itself, how the mind can do that. Um, and so biblical basis for it would actually, well, would be in two places. Paul's encounter with the Greeks in Acts 17, and then his when he was brought before King Agrippa in Acts 26. And in both of those instances, see, you don't see and some sort of explicit transcendental argument given by Paul. I mean, I would be totally fine saying Paul doesn't use a transcendental argument. But what Paul does is he does the exact same thing that presuppositionalists do in methodology. He never pretends neutrality. He never forsakes his Christian commitments. At every point, he stands on the revelation of God to preach to the Greek philosophers or to preach to King Agrippa. And even in Acts 17, he, he quotes the uh, philosopher's own poets. Even your own poets have said, you know, this, this, this. And so he uses their own worldview to criticize it. And then he comes in and says, well, let me talk about this Christ that raised from the dead and this God and God's angry with you and you need to repent. You have this altar to this unknown God. What is this all about? You know, so we see in Paul, first and foremost, no neutrality whatsoever an absolute certainty and acknowledging the authority of God's revelation, reducing his opponent's position to absurdity. And then fourth with King Agrippa, he asked King Agrippa, why do you find it incredible that God should raise someone from the dead? Well, what's Paul doing there? He's not only assuming the revelation of God that appeared to him on the road to Damascus um, and in Scripture and through all the prophets and everything, but he's implying that God is the source of all possibility. No, God exists, so why do you find it incredible that God should raise someone from the dead? So we see this standing on Scripture at every point in Paul's apologetic. He's acknowledging the antithesis between his thinking and worldly thinking, darkened thinking that I brought up in my opening statement. Is And he's citing God for other philosophical issues, like the possibility. We are, and we live and move and have our being, as the poets have said, but that's true because of God as well. And so even barring that Paul wouldn't use a transcendental argument or doesn't use a transcendental argument, He's still presuppositional, if I could put it that way, in terms of, you know, the way Van Til outlines our principles. This isn't anything new. The Van Til is just going back to Scripture. And the fact that, yeah, maybe the church hasn't adhered to it for 2,000 years doesn't say anything about the apologetic. It's just showing that the church is continuously being sanctified. The church isn't perfect, right? We were always growing. And any Protestant would say, wow, you know, in 1517, we really went through a lot of sanctification because we got a lot better you know, from that Western church and the Eastern church and all of that. So it's the church, the bride of Christ is growing in its sanctification. And so uh, my biblical basis would be for Paul and his encounter with the Greeks and both and both chapters of Acts as being presuppositional. And again, I have to clarify, Van Til would be the first to tell you we absolutely endorse the use of evidences. Presuppositionalism is not against using evidence whatsoever. As Paul says, and the same Engage, uh, engagement with King Agrippa. These things have not been done in a corner, right? I mean, we use evidences. And as David said, they used evidences in the Old Testament. So we're not against the use of evidences. We're just against using them apart from the Lordship of Christ, apart from standing on biblical authority. And so that's the difference. That's a worldview apologetic. All right. Thank you so much for that. Um, all right. So I think this is a good time to move to um, the closing comments, and then we can spend the rest of the time uh, tackling some of the questions that folks um, are asking. And I think that that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, by the way, this has been an excellent conversation. You guys have been 
super respectful and just yeah. a lot of content, no awkward pauses. <laughs> That's always the worst when you have someone, you know, as a host, you don't know, you know, if you, you don't know how things are going to go. And if it just gets super awkward and quiet, you're just kind of like, all right, let's move on. You know, <laughs> there's not much you can do at that point. So I really appreciate you guys have been doing an excellent job. So thank you very much. Um, so David, why don't you give us your closing comments and then uh, Joshua will give his closing comments and then we'll move right into the questions. All right. Yeah. So uh, I do not have a prepared closing statement. Uh, I <laughs> know I was going to get an opportunity for that. So, I mean, I'll just give some brief thoughts, though, uh, throughout this. And so I apologize that this isn't as well organized as my opening statement was. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, so here's kind of one thought. And, uh, you know, sorry to bring up an argument at the end here. This is just something that uh, I, I meant to bring up in the discussion and it just didn't come up. But um, as far as, you know, uh, getting knowledge, you know, objective knowledge or uh, public knowledge, so there's knowledge that's outside of yourself. Um, this is an argument that I have kind of developed uh, against presuppositionalism, you know, especially of if they want to bring this objection that Joshua has raised that, uh, well, you only have private knowledge and the only way you can get outside of that is through, you know, an inference that is less than certain. Uh, it does seem to me that the presuppositionalist, if he does not like the idea of having a less than certain inference, it does seem to me that he faces the same problem. Uh, it is true that you couldn't have a matrix-like scenario uh, under, um, you know, the Christian worldview. Obviously, you can't have worldwide deception. But uh, it certainly does seem that it could be the case on a local scale that you could have that sort of deception, right? Even if we assume that Christianity is true, it's possible that a mad scientist can still kidnap you and knock you out and hook you up to a machine and give you um, this, uh, you know, this virtual experience that, you know, is an illusion that would seem just as real as uh, our everyday experience does. If an evidentialist inference to the external world is not allowed for some reason, you know, a probabilistic inference, it seems like for the same reason, the presuppositionalist is stuck in this problem. How does how is he able to get knowledge of an external world uh, unless he's allowed to make an inference to the best explanation, namely that it's, it's just less probable that he is the victim of a mad scientist within the Christian worldview? So note that, that that's not it's not begging the question against the presuppositionalist. Uh, you know, and so uh, that's just something I think uh, that people who would want to urge this argument against my epistemology are going to need to wrestle with is that it does seem like even under the Christian worldview, you're still going to have to make a probabilistic inference to get out of that problem. Uh, and so, you know, just, just some closing thoughts here. Um, uh, it's come up here a few times in the past that, you know, we're making reason the ultimate authority. Uh, no, reason is not an authority. Reasoning is a cognitive process. It's not a proposition. It's not something that gives propositions. Uh, so it, it's just it's wrong to think of that it's an authority. And, uh, you know, I think when, you know, Bolt was on, Chris Bolt was on the channel. He talked about, you know, I make myself the authority or something like that. Uh, on an evidentialist model, justification terminates in evidences. It doesn't terminate in authorities. And so that's, I think, an important point to keep clear on. Uh, and a few other points here. Uh, I am curious how presuppositionalists can justify their own beliefs in say, logic, induction, or knowledge at all. It seems like it goes back to a circular foundation. And to the extent that we're not willing to accept that circular reasoning is uh, justificatory, then it's not going to actually serve to justify those beliefs for the presuppositionalist. Uh, I would maintain that we can justify those beliefs uh, on evidentialism. And so 
to the extent that we want to have justified beliefs in logic and induction, we should be evidentialists. Uh, and this maybe as a last point is it does seem to me that transcendental arguments have premises. And the evidentialists can always ask, how do you know these premises? Like not, not even that they're true, but just how do you even um, know these propositions? How do you know uh, that you're holding these particular propositions in mind? And it seems that a transcendental argument is gonna require acquaintance for that. You're going to need a direct acquaintance with those propositions that are forming the um, premises in your argument. And if that's correct, then not to have a mic drop moment, but um, transcendental arguments will presuppose or at least require the truth of evidentialism. Thank you very much for that, David. <laughs> I, hey, I hope I'm doing an okay job at being neutral. I just got finished teaching a class saying neutrality is impossible. I'm trying my best. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to be as objective as possible, and I appreciate uh, what both of you guys have to say. So thank you so much for that. Um, just real quick, um, David, I didn't. Um, we didn't mention uh, closing statements beforehand. And Joshua had said express if he could have a closing statement. And I, I figured it would be okay between the both of you. And, and David didn't have an opportunity to prepare one. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there. It's, it's my bad. Um, but I think you did an excellent job kind of uh, summarizing your thoughts there, David. Um, so thank you. Um, so Joshua, why don't you give your closing statement and then we'll move right into the Q&A. Okay. Uh, well, first, thank you, uh, Eli and David for um, making this discussion possible. I hope it's been nothing but edifying to those watching live and those who will watch live in the future. Um, I think it's been great. Um, well, my opening statement I presented revolved around the moral and epistemic necessity of adhering to a revelational epistemology. I would like to close out today's discussion by addressing the antithesis that exists between the people of God and the people of the world. The antithesis between darkness and light has existed since the beginning of time. In the garden, Eve audaciously assumed the role of God. She, through the beguiling deceit of the serpent, brought into question the absolute authority of God's revelation to her and Adam to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Has God said? The serpent asked them. Sin, therefore, did not enter the world through the act of eating the fruit, but rather from the moment Adam and Eve brought into question the words of God and themselves assumed the role of God. As a result of such disobedience, sin and death entered the world. Second, as is obvious, the antithesis is present today between those whom God has saved and those who reject their maker and their love for sin and autonomy, for their desire to assume the role of God in interpreting how reality really is, worshiping themselves rather than God, as Paul poignantly says in Romans. How is the apologist to operate in such a climate? Should we cater to worldly standards, pretend neutrality for the sake of open-mindedness, and hope to win over the unbeliever who is darkened in their understanding? By operating on their feudal principles in order to bring them to the faith. Such a method is internally incoherent. Such a method requires openly rejecting the antithesis that is pre everywhere present, not just in salvation, but in our entire thinking processes, according to Paul, in order to hopefully win over the unbeliever and thereafter acknowledge that the antithesis was there all along. The apologist must rather always stand firm on the authority of Christ and his revelation. The apologist must not do what the first Adam did, putting the God's revelation to the test in order to potentially win over the unbeliever to thereafter preach behind the pulpit that what the first Adam did was wrong. Such an apologetic method is self-contradictory. To quote from Bonson, and I love this, he says, and I quote, Christ, the second Adam, unlike the first Adam, replied, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. The first Adam put God to the test. 
the test of his own thinking and what he would find acceptable. The second Adam refused to do what the first Adam did. Thus, Satan's challenge was answered by Jesus from scriptural authority, even though it was the authority of scripture that was in question. End quote. It's like, what's wrong with you, Jesus? We can't beg any questions, right? You see, Van Til has taught us that the Bible has the self-authenticating and authoritative words of God himself is authoritative over everything, since it speaks of everything, either directly or through implication. And as such, we ought, indeed, we must as Christians stand on its authority and on its authority alone when defending the faith. For only through the lens of God and God's inscripturated revelation can experience be made intelligible. To pretend neutrality is to embrace an absurd and immoral position against our creator. Since God is faithful to us, Bonson says, our apologetic must not be faithless to him. Our apologetic must always be rooted in the lordship of Jesus Christ, in whom are deposited all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Apart from starting with this Christ, our apologetic, indeed our philosophies of life, following worldly thinking, will always end in ruin and intellectual suicide via subjectivism. I close with these words from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. He says, and I quote, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to discern them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." Proof of God's existence is that without God, you couldn't prove anything. In order to even bring it into question, you have to assume he exists and the truths of the Christian worldview are true. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for that, Joshua. And thanks again, David, uh, for your closing comments as well. This has been an excellent discussion, and I'm looking forward to having some fun with some of the questions. And so we'll jump right in. There's a question here from Ron Giacomo. He says, question for Brother David. Uh, what are the preconditions for the possibility of direct acquaintance? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, I don't think we actually have to know the answer to that in order to uh, be able to uh, have justified true beliefs on the basis of direct acquaintances. But uh, once, you know, we have made inferences to the existence of the external world and such, then uh, it seems that certain uh, conclusions that we could draw for, you know, what originally made it possible for us to have those direct acquaintances in the first place would seem to be uh, properly functioning cognitive faculties, for example, uh, my eyes actually have to work, my nose has to work, my my tongue has to be able to taste things. Uh, it seems like I, uh, I'm i a dualist, so I think that we actually would have to have a soul that is able to um, receive the qualia that our senses uh, bring in. Uh, as a theist, I think that God is actually necessary to create us in such a way that we are able to um, interact with the world. So uh, those are some examples of the, I guess another one you could mention would be um, an environment that is um, compatible with our um, having direct acquaintances. So those would be some um, examples of things that I would say are preconditions for the possibility of direct acquaintance, but I don't arrive at them a priori. I arrive at them a posteriori, that is as the result of inferences. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, Joshua, do you have any comments on uh, David's response there? And if you don't, you can just pass and we can move on. But if you do, you can take a few moments to respond. No, I'm, I'm okay. 
Okay. Thank you very much for that, Ron. Uh, thank you so much for the $5 super chat. Israel has just been dropping $5 every episode. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Uh, so Israel asks, uh, David, how does your view not end up being pragmatic ultimately? If it is, if it is, why hold it? Is your pragmatic choice arbitrary? Um, I, yeah, don't think that my view is a sort of pragmatism. Uh, so the view that I hold, I guess would not, I mean, you could, you could hold pragmatic elements to it, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I would just reject, um, the premise that he seems to be assuming, which is that my view is pragmatism, whether or not it's pragmatic. I mean, I spend an awful lot of time, people, a lot of people would say wasting time, you know, <laughs> reading books on epistemology. So in some ways, maybe it's not pragmatic. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, to the extent that he thinks that I'm a pragmatist, I would just reject that assumption. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, I have to scroll through, so pardon if it takes me a couple of, uh, okay. Here's a question for Joshua by, uh, Travis Lee. Thank you so much. Um, he says, uh, Joshua, do you think we can have the same degree of epistemic certainty with phenomenal conservatism, uh, that we can with precept? Uh, you have to define phenomenal. I, I can define that term for yeah, you. Yeah, so phenomenal conservatism would be a form of weaker foundationalism. They would agree that we have the two tier structure of belief. Mm -hmm. But uh, when it comes to basic beliefs, they would say that those are justified by recourse to a seeming instead of an acquaintance. What's okay. a seeming? So just think it seems to you that um, God exists. So you're not inferentially justified in believing that God exists based on that seeming. Uh, it would be fallible, right? Because obviously something can seem to be the case would be wrong, but they would seem they would state that that seeming can function as evidence. I would say that um, phenomenal conservatism relies on the Christian worldview and the epistemic certainty that comes with it, the metaphysical uh, baggage, if you will. And so, uh, if I was going to give a harsh criticism, I would say that it would at best conjure uh, psychological certainty. I don't. I'm not sure if it would. Um, procure epistemic certainty. But at the end of the day, again, I would add, I would say that uh, presuppositionalism, starting with the Christian worldview, with revelation that directly comes from God, is epistemically certain. Because any foundationalist epistemology, like we started out with, stems from man. And well, what's man? He's fallible, he's finite, he's subjective, he's imperfect, we could be in a matrix. David's already alluded to that. So I don't think the degree of certainty would be the same in a phenomenal conservatistic approach um, than it would be with a presuppositional approach. David, would you, you have any comments on that since that was a question for, for uh, Joshua? I mean, I'll just say I don't think either one gets you certainty. There's a host of problems with phenomenal conservatism out there. But, I mean, just an obvious one would be, you know, why do you think a seeming is indicative of truth? Uh, you know, you could say it seems to me that it is, but it, you kind of get a circularity problem there. So, um, yeah, I mean, no, I don't think phenomenal conservatism or pre-sub get you certainty. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, here's another one for Joshua. I mean, this is a comment, but I think it kind of relates. Uh, it can, you can kind of extract a, an interesting question from that. So Alex Malpass, uh, who was mentioned previously uh, before in a couple minutes ago, um, he made the argument, if I don't know God exists, then the Christian God doesn't exist. How would you respond to that, Joshua? It seems to be the case that to refute uh, the Christian claim that all men know that a God exists, we just need to assert, well, no, I don't. And so end of the story. End of story. How would you respond to that? Uh, well, theologically, that's not true, mm -hmm. right? And that's pretty straightforward. Now, he's not going to accept that because he's not a Christian. If, if Ryan is representing Malpass correctly here, I would, I, I'm would. i shocked that he would even say something like this. I don't know God exists, therefore the Christian God doesn't exist, which is basically saying, you know, according to some subjectivistic mental state that I have, 
therefore there's an objective conclusion that God doesn't exist. That doesn't follow at all. I mean, we have beliefs. We have so many beliefs, you know, in our epistemic and noetic web of things. And then on top of these beliefs, we have iterated beliefs, second order beliefs about our beliefs. And so for all he knows, he could be being deceived. He could be deceiving himself himself. And that's what Romans says. And again, Dr. Bonson, his doctoral dissertation was on this very subject, but at base, it's just asinine. It's like, I subjectively don't have this belief. Therefore, it's absolutely the case that God doesn't exist. There's no serious scholarship there. Hmm. All right. Thank you. Uh, David, do you have any comments on that? <laughs> Oops, I'm muted, aren't I? All right. Uh, I would say just it seems like it's a premise in an argument. You have to add uh, additional premises to that to say, I don't know that the Christian God exists. Therefore, the Christian God does not exist. And I'll just say I'm not. Christians aren't committed to the claim that all people know that God exists. Um, I know many Christians who don't affirm that. So, I mean, it seems like you would have to modify that to say that the Christian God as conceived of by presuppositionalists. So I mean, a lot of modification would be needed there. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you for that. Israel again with another $5 super chat. Thank you so much. Uh, David, why, why appeal to plausibility to explain meta logic? How do you know you're not missing tons of factors that could change what is most plausible? Uh, yeah, simple answer is I don't. Um, if you're familiar with uh, my work on how I think we can justify our belief in logical laws, and if you haven't, uh, you're not familiar with it, I have a video on my channel called The Justification of Logical Laws, where I deal with this. Uh, I do not appeal to plausibility. I think that these are justified by recourse to our direct acquaintance with concepts that build up logical propositions, uh, as well as a concept that... Um, philosophers call analyticity and it's more complicated than that. So anyone who's interested, I'll just point you to the video on my channel. All right. Thank you for that. Um, you have any comments on that, Joshua? Yeah. And so David's response was basically what I've been getting at this whole time. He's starting with an egocentric picture and now he's openly admitting that he can't answer the big questions because why he's starting with a finite you know, subject himself. And so he's being consistent. He said, oh, I can't answer the big questions. I, I can't. I'm not infinite. I don't know all the answers. And which is to say that and ultimately speaking, that sort of epistemology is irrational because he can't answer all the questions. Ultimately, everything's mystery up to a certain point because of our finitude. And so, again, this just gets back to my point that if you don't start with God, it's just a subjectivistic picture. It's an egocentric predicament, which is absurd. You know, we can't what kind of apologetic would be, you know, prefaced off of that or, or jumping off of that starting point. And that's been my argument this whole time tonight is it's subjective, it's private, it's egocentric, whatever you want to call it. But there's nothing you know serious or meaningful here that's objective or universally um, applicable. Okay, thank you. Uh, Chris Bolt uh, asks, uh, David, uh, you appear to argue for internalist foundationalism as an epistemology rather than evidentialism as an apologetic method. What succinct biblical argument would you offer for evidentialism? Uh, you're you're muted, David. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did discuss evidentialism as an apologetic method at the beginning of my opening statement, but I, because that's the outworking of the epistemology, uh, that, that's what I have identified as the reason for there being different apologetic methods is because we have different theories of justification and so different ways of justifying our faith. Uh, I think that's where the main differences lie, and so that's why um, I primarily have focused on that uh, area. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I offered it before. Basically, uh, a brief case would be uh, a look at Paul's appeals to evidence in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, look at how Elijah deals with the prophets of Baal, uh, look at uh, Jesus's uh, 
pointing to his miracles as evidence for uh, why people should believe in him. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I could probably think of more examples than that if I really wanted to, but those are just kind of three that quickly come to mind. And uh, Joshua, do you have anything to say to say to that? So, so uh, David suggests that there are appeals to evidence there, and so that kind of his methodology is consistent with what we see in Scripture. Um, would you take issue with how he uses that as an explanation, or do you kind of agree on the surface there? Well, we got to be very careful because uh, Doctor Bolt is asking about evidentialism, not about just using evidence, ev evidences. And so, evidentialism, what does that all entail? Right, that we can use evidences alone to get to probability that God exists. But as I've stated earlier, God or Paul does not argue from probability in Acts. Yeah, he'll appeal to evidences, and that's totally fine. But he's standing on scripture the entire time, and he's utilizing reductio arguments of his opponent's uh, worldview to reduce it to absurdity. And he's always standing on the bedrock of revelation. And so um, what David is um, referencing are instances of giving evidences. But now I have to ask, is that the same thing as evidentialism? as opposed to just giving evidences, because presuppositionalist degree, that's totally legit. Yeah, let's use evidence is all we want, you know, but what about the ism? That's the part that I would press further on. All right, Chris Bolt has another question, but for Joshua Pillows. Uh, you appear to be arguing for certainty in precept and against in other positions, but how does precept address those who don't affirm or need epistemic certainty in their view? This came up, I don't remember when this came up. Um, Again, I, I would just go back to transcendental considerations. What needs to be the case in order for to even make sense of do we need certainty or do we not need certainty? I'm going to keep going back to transcendental considerations. In order to even bring that uh, question, in order to even make it intelligible, I'm going to argue it assumes the existence of God in order to do so in a Christian worldview. Um, as to whether or not certainty is required for knowledge, I mean, you'll get different answers. I lean towards infallibilism. Um, as a whole, but I, I wouldn't give a definitive answer as of yet. But my point being that I would just uh, go to transcendental considerations. If anyone wants to talk about certainty, again, Vantil says take any fact whatsoever, and we'll see how it fits into the system via transcendental implication into uh, the mind of God and how he's interrelated all the facts together. So mm -hmm. transcendentally. Okay. Uh, David, do you have any comments on that? I mean, I, I'm also an infallibilist, with at least with respect to basic beliefs. Uh, and I mean, there are plenty of arguments for infallibilism. Uh, and so, I mean, that's what I would put against a precept or anyone else who doesn't think that certainty is needed, at least at the level of basic beliefs. And, uh, you know, for a collection of such arguments, I'll just refer people to uh, Dr. Nevin Klimenhaga has a paper titled uh, Knowledge and Certainty. It's his uh, PhD dissertation, where he offers several arguments for the conclusion that knowledge requires certainty. And uh, I, I personally find many of them quite persuasive. I would like to piggyback off of that because, you know, if, if someone comes along and says, well, we don't need epistemic certainty for anything whatsoever, if they're, you know, a universal fallibilist, well, then they have to embrace the absurd view that they could be wrong about the nature of laws of logic and uniformity in nature and that they exist, going back to Descartes' argument. If certainty is not required for anything and everything, then they start, they have to start saying, well, I'm not sure that I exist or that laws of logic are real or that there are mathematical norms. Well, just Joshua, I, I know Christians who hold to the position that they don't even know they exist. So there are yeah. people who hold to that. Yeah. Well, like Say once I heard there are Christian physicalists, I, everything just went out the window for me. So, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, if you're going to hold to, you know, we don't need certainty over anything whatsoever, then you're you have to embrace these absurd beliefs that we could be wrong about everything, about laws of logic and uniformity and causality, and that just doesn't make it's self-refuting. So, 
Okay. Joshua, well, after this, remind me to send you a book on Christian physicalism that you will love. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Israel again with another super chat. Uh, he's just got an endless... Uh, <laughs> endless supply of five dollars hey endless man cash flow that's right that's right uh he says david uh and i apologize if it's grammatically incorrect i'm just going to read it as best i can david with god you have intention of logic working you got teleology you cannot derive teleology from a non-god explanation we justify that it works i don't know if you understand what he's getting at but if you do you can try and take a stab at it yeah, so uh, as you noted, it is phrased a little awkwardly, but um, I'm going to do my best. So um, he says that with God, you have intention of logic. So, I mean, in my view, again, as I've said, I, I lean towards a nominalist view. So on nominalism, uh, logical laws, they're just mental propositions in our minds. They're, they're not, they don't correspond to like an external abstract object. There is no the law of non-contradiction floating around in the universe. Uh, it's an analytic proposition that we have uh, in our own mind. Uh, so in that sense, yeah, I'm going to want to say it's intentional. And so, well, yeah, if you want to be a divine conceptualist, you could say, uh, I can explain that through God. I mean, okay, through nominalism, I can explain that through a human mind. It's not clear to me that a divine mind is necessary for that. If you want to go the Platonist route on that, um, I think they can just deny that logic is something that is intentional and that, that has not been justified as far as I can see. All right. Thank you for that. And uh, Joshua, do you have comments on that? I do like this point. I'm, I, if I remember correctly, um, James Anderson and Greg Welty referenced this in their paper, Lord of Non-Contradiction, whether, you know, there's something distinct about, you know, laws of logic and that they have an aboutness. They have intentionality about something as opposed to, you know, something, some other relationship like spatial relationships or something like that. Um Logic is about something, and that's not a property you find in the physical universe. It's something that transcends it. And if logic has intentionality about something, then, um, as Anderson would argue, it comes from a source, a mind that is also about something. So I do find this um, question rather fascinating. Mm. All right, thank you. This is a question for Joshua. Uh, do you think that God exists can ever be the conclusion of an argument? If not, then there can't be a line of reasoning for God, and thus no reason for atheists to accept his existence. Um, I'm not sure I understand the second half, but of course I believe, do you think God exists can never, can ever be the conclusion? Wait, can ever be the conclusion? Well, that's my argument. That's the transcendental argument. I mean, and I mean, roughly stated, you know, Van Til's argument is the Christian worldview is true and that God exists. And so that's the conclusion of the transcendental argument. So I'm not coming in here with some sort of fallibilistic or probabilistic argument saying, I believe God exists, but I could be wrong. You know, Van Til says it's a concrete transcendental worldview apologetic and argument that God absolutely does exist. So my argument tonight has been that God does exist and we all know it absolutely. And that it's an objective proof. So, okay. all right. Uh, David, did you have any comments on that? Yeah. I was just going to say within presuppositionalism, I don't think that they would ever be denying that God can be the conclusion of an argument. I think they would say in some sense, the argument started with God as well, although obviously not as simplistic as God exists, therefore God exists. But yeah, I mean, presuppositionalists, so far as I know, don't have a problem saying that God exists can be the conclusion of an argument. They're just going to want to insist that the way that they got there was showing that you depended on God all along. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you for that. Um, there's a question here from Larry Rain. Uh, how does one give an account for the reliability of their reasoning 
without arguing and reasoning in a circle. I suppose that's for David. Um, okay, I was going to ask if Josh wanted to take a stab at it first since uh, I got the last question. But... Oh, that's fine. Uh, or, or, sorry, I, I guess I guess he did get the last question. I'll take it first if you want. Okay, okay. All right, yeah, I wrote an article on this specific question. I would be on Free Thinking Ministries. The article is entitled, Is All Reasoning Circular? So you can see my extended thoughts there. But um, basically, uh, when the question comes up, is our reasoning reliable? Uh, I think that, and basically you have to assume it in order to justify it. Uh, I think that this assumes an externalist, reliableist account of epistemic justification. Uh, I'm an evidentialist. So at the level of basic beliefs, I'm just going to jettison any reliability requirements. At the level of basic beliefs, justification always uh, comes by means of acquaintance. Uh, if reliability is relevant at some later point, you know, that's fine, but it's going to be justified uh, through evidence or through. He froze. See, Calvinism's true. He's one of the frozen chosen. That's <laughs> <laughs> it. It's a, dad it's a good hey. It's a good pose though. I mean, he's like yeah, he does. He's spitting facts, yo. <laughs> he's spitting. He's spitting them evidences, bro. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> oh man, I'm so sorry, David. Um, uh, you could, uh, David. You could if you could hear me. Could. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just you could try signing out and then following the link again. That might actually be um, that might actually work. So. Uh, I'm so sorry, guys. All right. Um, oh, I don't want to shortchange his answer, too. Uh, okay, so we, we'll just move along, and uh, hopefully he'll be able to sign back in. Okay? See if I could find a question for uh, Joshua here. Do, 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 do. Let's see here. I think we're kind of drawn to the end, unless it starts loading up again. Let's see here. Um, while I'm scrolling for a, qu a question, uh, give, give uh, this video a thumbs up if you've been enjoying this conversation. Um, and even in the comments, give it a thumbs up if uh, you let me know that you're enjoying these sorts of conversations. So um, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. I think both speakers have done an excellent job. Uh, there was one question that was kind of a fun one, David. Uh, someone, someone said, I'm sorry, Joshua. Someone said, well, I really want to know what is under the blanket behind Joshua. Uh, there's something, I guess there's a blanket behind you. Uh, maybe you're concealing something. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. So, well, uh, David said, asked if he was back in the chat, and I said, I see your chat, but I don't see his. I think mm -hmm. he tried to restart. Um, so, I'm at my aunt's house right now because my cousins are in town from college, uh -huh. and we're having a big party after this. And this is the office, and basically, there's a lot of clutter in here. So my cousin was like, just throw a blanket on it. You know, it'll look a lot more uh, cleaned up and everything. So um, it's not a dead body or anything. It's just a lot of <laughs> stuff that I don't even know what it is. I just covered it for aesthetic appeal. So All right. Okay. Um, Yvonne, I think Yvonne Rivera says, how can I support you, Eli? Well, thank you so much. Uh, you can support by uh, subscribing to the channel if you haven't already. Uh, you could also financially support if you're so inclined through super chats on these live chats. And uh, you can also give to Revealed Apologetics through the Revealed Apologetics website. So revealedapologetics.com, there's a donate button. And of course, 
um, financial um, help is always um, appreciated. Um, and of course, I know this is often given as kind of like a throwaway, like I'm a Christian, so I would say that, but I would really appreciate your prayers. Um, so um, that's another way that you can support um, myself, Revealed Apologetics, you know. Um, so thank you for that. Um, here's a, a question here. Someone is at planting as bulldog. Oh, oh, it seems like David's back with us. Sorry. Okay. There he is. I'm sorry that that happened, man. Is there, do you remember the line of, of reasoning you were kind of already on that you uh, might want to just pick up where you left off or? Oh, I mean, I, I was on, on the last sentence. I was just about to say, I think that the uh, question, how do you know that your reasoning is reliable? Just, it, it begs the question in favor of externalism and reliabilism. And so if you're an evidentialist, you don't have a circularity problem there. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, Plantigas Bulldog uh, says, while we're waiting, well, he's back, but perhaps you can kind of give a brief explanation here, uh, Joshua. Um, can you explain your answer to the Stroudian objection? In his discussion with Balint, uh, it seemed like he didn't understand the objection or else I didn't get his reply. So um, basically, um, by the way, if you have no idea what the Stroudian objection to transcendental arguments are, um, I have had Joshua on previously. And if you search through my videos and the podcast, where the entire episode is discussing the Stroudian objection. So you can go uh, look uh, to that video for more information. But uh, why don't you um, uh, explain your response to the Stroudian objection? Briefly, briefly explain what the objection is and your brief summary response. That, that would be very helpful. So in the uh, 20th century, transcendental arguments kind of resurfaced after um, the 19th century, you know, Kant for... Um, spearheaded the uh, philosophy of it. And so in the 20th century, they kind of come back, but they come back in like local sort of arguments over specific issues. It's not broad scope at anything like Van Til. And so you'd have philosophers arguing transcendentally and Stroud critiqued one philosopher and I'm not going to get into all of it, but basically Stroud said, well, a transcendental argument, you can conclude that we necessarily have to think in a certain way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it is out there in external reality. Right. In order to know anything outside of us, we need a verification principle by which we can verify what the truths outside of us are, what reality is. So if someone wants to give a transcendental argument, that's totally fine. But all it can only ever conclude is we have to think this certain way. And this was his response to Strawson. And so, um, well, this would be devastating if it applied to Van Til because it's like, uh oh. Well, now all we have is some sort of conceptual transcendental argument that we have to think this way, but that doesn't mean God actually does exist. And Bonson's answer to that, and I don't know if Antil answered it directly, but Bonson's answer was, well, everyone starts with a metaphysical scheme, right? I mean, it's not like we're all coming into this neutrally without any metaphysical assumption. Excuse me, man, hiccups. And so um, Vantil's apologetic is a concrete worldview apologetic. We start with the Christian worldview. That's how we know we're in touch with reality, how we know God exists and we were made in his image and we can know things. And so... Our transcendental method already has built into it the metaphysical scheme of Christianity. And so two comebacks to that would be, well, how do we know that, that what the metaphysical scheme is? And the answer would be through scripture. And someone says, oh, well, you have the Bible. That's scripture. That's your verification principle. So you don't need the transcendental argument. Well, no, that doesn't automatically mean we don't need a transcendental argument. All, all it means is Van Til has given us added ammunition. I've said earlier, Paul didn't use the transcendental argument in Acts but he still stood upon the authority of scripture just as we do. So scripture is our verification principle. The second answer to that would be, oh, no, no, Van Til's begging the question. You can't start with God. You can't start with all the metaphysical truths of Christianity because that's begging the question. You have to start with man and then work out from man. 
Well, of course, that criticism is extremely naive because he's taken for granted what he's trying to argue against. How does he know we can't start with God? How does he know that we have to start with man before going out to God? So the critic, the Stradian critic who raises that criticism is likewise begging the question. He hasn't assumed that we can't start with God. He's just taken it for granted. And so uh, the question or the answer to it presuppositionally is we start with the Christian worldview. And the critic who wants to object to that starts with his non-Christian worldview. So if I'm begging the question, so is the critic. The point is we all beg the question in that we all start somewhere. The real question is, how do you justify that starting point? Vantil's answer was from the impossibility of the contrary. Okay. David, you have any uh, comments on that? My own thoughts on Pillow's response to this particular argument, which is you know, certainly one of the stronger ones against um, transcendental arguments, yeah. though it's not one that I have really developed myself in my own criticisms of presuppositional apologetics. But I guess my issue with uh, Joshua's particular response is that uh, I think it just kind of shifts the issue. The problem here is about the justification that a transcendental argument yields. And uh, Joshua's just sort of like saying, well, that objection doesn't it doesn't apply to my argument because I, I don't believe in autonomous reasoning. Uh, and I don't know that it has anything to do with autonomy per se. It's just about whether the argument can confer justification. So saying it doesn't apply to me, it just seems like special pleading to me. But again, I, I would have to more carefully look at, you know, Joshua's written work on this and even get my own thoughts on Stroud's whole objection more clear myself. It seems like a good objection to transcendental arguments, at least world-directed transcendental arguments. But, um, and, and I, yeah, but those are just kind of some, some scattered thoughts I have on it. I've, I've written a paper on the Stroudian objection against Valence paper uh, supporting it. Um, and I, wasn't left satisfied with it for whatever reason. So for those of you who want to, you know, get more insight, I've written a completely new paper on the objection that I uh, have yet to be released, but it's brand new. It's from a different approach and I think I've got more in it. So I will be releasing another lengthy paper responding to the Stradian objection because I wholeheartedly agree with what David said. I think this is one of the most devastating criticisms of um, presuppositionalism. And uh, I mean, I believe Bonson answered it wholeheartedly. I mean, everyone begs the question. We have to start somewhere. You justify it transcendentally. But anyway, yeah, so I have a paper coming out as well, a new one. All right. Well, um, that seems to be the end of the questions. I do apologize if I missed any of the questions. It's uh, the way StreamYard works. I kind of have to scroll through some stuff and sift through comments and questions. But um, I'd like to thank both my guests, David Palman and Joshua Pillows. You guys did an excellent job, and I am... I, I am positive that uh, this discussion will prove useful for people who are, are interested in these sort of methodological uh, debates. The, the one thing that I want to encourage people, and, and I guess I just feel kind of impelled, uh, compelled to say this, is that we have to understand, okay, uh, David's a Christian, Joshua is a Christian, I'm a Christian, we disagree. I mean, fine. There's nothing wrong with criticizing and critiquing, um, but I would encourage folks to not make this kind of like ter apologetic turf war sort of thing. Like when this debate is over, uh, I hope that people don't trash the other guy and, you know, oh, look at this guy. You know, I think we should really just come to grips with the specific things that they um, uh, that they said and deal with the arguments and not so much uh, the persons and things. Let's not blow this out of proportion like many people tend to do um, once these sort of debates end. Um, so uh, we want to honor Christ even in the midst of our disagreement, and that includes even when the camera is not on. So I would encourage folks um, to have at it, rewatch this video, 
take notes, have your debates, but do so as First Peter 3.15 says, with gentleness and respect. David, is there any uh, place that you'd like to direct people uh, to um, become more familiar with your own work, your YouTube channel, maybe a website, some books? Um, now would be the time to share that with folks. Yeah, sure. So for uh, my own, um, you know, thoughts on this topic, uh, I, as I mentioned, Free Thinking Ministries is a website where I've published a few articles, some of them on presuppositional apologetics, though not all. Uh, and then on my own uh, channel, Faith Because of Reason. Uh, also, if you just want to look into this issue a little more, um, I think this is a good book for getting into it. Uh, it's titled Debating Christian Religious Epistemology. Uh, it's you got five different views in there, but one of them being the classical foundationalism that I hold. And then you've got uh, Scott Oliphant defending presuppositionalism. It's a great uh, introduction to the topic, very clearly written. Just evidentialism in general, this is kind of the standard work on it, a little dated by now, but uh, evidentialism by Earl Connie and Richard Feldman. And then if you want the, in my opinion, the penultimate critique of presuppositional apologetics, though not necessarily directed towards it, uh, this book, Internalism and Epistemology uh, by Timothy and Lydia McGrew, it's just a general critique of all um, versions of epistemic externalism, which is going to include presuppositionalism. All right. Thank you for that, David. And Joshua, is there any anywhere you want to direct people to your stuff, your articles, things like that? Um, not presently. I have a lot coming, um, but I, I'm going to refrain from making any sort of announcements right now. Um, as always, I always recommend, um, if not Bonson, Jason Lyle, if you want a really primer in, uh, introduction to presuppositionalism, and then Bonson, and then Van Til after that to get a, so you'll have a fundamental uh, understanding of it. But um, you'll find tons of resources on the Presuppositional Apologetics Facebook group thousands of members in there and so many links and papers that have been posted over the years in there. So um, you really can't go wrong. If you have a question, just join that group and ask a question. And we'll Ricky Roldan will tell you, yeah. use the search. <laughs> yeah. He always, yeah. He's, I know. Yeah. He's <laughs> he doesn't mind if I call him out. Um, by the way, just, you mentioned David Lyle's work. Um, I just want to let people know that David has a review on um, Jason Lyle's book, uh, the ultimate proof for creation, where he offers his, criticism of uh, the presuppositionalism that's presented by uh, Dr. Lyle there. So folks can check that out. I believe it's on the free thinking uh, website as well, right? Is that correct, David? It is, although I'm going to qualify and say that I think um, I was a little newer in epistemology then, so I would okay. have developed some of my thoughts there a little differently. So yes, you can read it. I think my general critique of Lyle stands, and that is where you can find it. But I, um, I, would, I would have said some things differently in retrospect. All right. Well, uh, thank you, gentlemen. It has been a blessing and an honor. Uh, love you both. And um, keep working for the kingdom, even as we disagree. And when we get to heaven, we'll find out who's right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, well, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. Questions, super chats, so much appreciated. Uh, until next time, that's all for this episode. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye.